Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, November 29, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. This will be the first show I've done with a lozenge in my mouth. <laughs> I mean, I mispronounce so many words, so if I mispronounce more words, well, I mean, I don't know that I mispronounce. I do mispronounce words, but I make up words. Yeah. So, so if, I, <laughs> if, if, if something sounds like a made-up word... This lozenge has got you actually I'm kind of sort of in my way affecting your. But ability I told you to, yesterday, I started feeling words. bad. I mean, Sunday yeah. night I started feeling a bit under. The, I'd have been Monday night. Started feeling a bit under the weather, and um, I got this head cold, aggravating enough to complain. I mean, not enough to keep you the bed and keep you out of. I don't know, out of the uh, what? What am I saying? Out of the workforce, mm-hmm. but but enough to make you whine and complain and gripe and fuss and tell your audience that you're enduring. <laughs> Through some um, slightly less than favorable conditions. Get a little sympathy for your... I doubt that. I doubt that very seriously. Um, want to begin the show. Um, we throw the word icon and titan and legend and all these other um, sorts of um, descriptives. But if you, if you do this for a living and you try to not pigeon your hole specifically and exclusively to politics, we talk a lot on this show about the Federal Reserve and the economy and... You know, what we think has happened, what we think needs to happen. But there is, there's been one figure that I have found the most entertaining opinion giver in all of finance, Charlie Munger. Mm-hmm. Died at the age of 99. Um, everybody knows who Warren Buffett is. Some of you know who Charlie Munger is. He is the, um, the senior partner, or uh, was, passed away yesterday at the age of 99. I think he would have been 100. New Year's Eve or New Year's Day or somewhere thereabouts. So for all practical purposes, uh, I mean, he's, he's 99, but he lived 100 years. And um, he, he kind of sort of let Warren Buffett take the lead um, as they formed Berkshire Hathaway. I read yesterday, I mean, I read a lot about Munger because I've always been interested. Um, Buffett called him the abominable no man. Because he didn't want to be in the limelight, he, you know, he said, "Warren, you got far more personality and sizzle than I do. You know, you get out and do your thing. I'll sit in this office and crunch balance sheets and spreadsheets and and P and Ls to see." But but Warren Buffett said ah, five years ago in one of these interviews, and and it goes back to some of the rock and roll stuff, Rev and I've talked about. You know, kind kind of dealing with your mortality. Uh, you don't take any of that money home with you. Uh, and I'm talking about home being a heaven and hell or what, wherever you believe eternity is, uh, that, that will be, in other words, your earthly existence is no longer uh, in place. The billions of dollars that you're allowed to spend and have access to in your earthly existence, um, that, that doesn't exist any longer. So once again, the hereafter, I guess, would be a better way to say it. I know what I believe. I, believe. I don't know that Buffett or Munger believe that. Um, but anyway, Charlie Munger was the guy that convinced Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett said he bought cigarette butt companies. And it's kind of interesting, the analogy they used. By, by the cigarette butt company, Buffett was, um, I mean, he, he was kind of a, um, a disciple of a Harvard business teacher. And um, the Harvard business teacher had a theory. Go find uh, a decent company that you can buy cheap, and there's a couple of more puffs on the cigarette. And that was Buffett's <laughs> strategy at Berkshire in the early days. And Munger gets there, and he and Munger have this, I mean, they're both, uh, they're both unbelievably skilled at math. Uh, Munger gets drafted by the military or may have enlisted in the military and they assigned him to some thermodynamics team. I mean, it was obvious he was a soldier, 
been a soldier above with above average IQ. Um, so he was, he and, he and Buffett were both extremely gifted at math and balance sheets and P&Ls and whatnot. But, but Charlie Munger convinced Warren Buffett, look, let's do away with that theory. I mean, I understand it served you fairly well. And he says, we had this piddly amount of money. Now the piddly amount of money was a couple of hundred million dollars. <laughs> But, I mean, in their world, that's yeah. a piddly amount of that's money. A start. They, they couldn't buy into some of the companies they really wanted to. So Charlie Munger convinced Warren Buffett, forget the cigarette butt theory. Let's buy exceptional companies that are fairly priced. I mean, that became, let, let's, buy, let's buy sector and industry and, uh, you know, uh, leaders. In other words, let's, I, I'm trying to think of a company that would have been, well, I mean, ESPN is a little bit different today. But a lot of investing was done in ESPN before Disney purchased because they felt they had, an, a, you know, kind of a competitive advantage in that marketplace. And if somebody wanted to, you know, wanted to get in the business of covering sports 24-7, you got to build this new infrastructure and enterprise and whatnot. And we found out that Disney did it the old-fashioned way. They bought it. You know, they, they said <laughs> instead of trying to build something like ESPN, why don't we just buy ESPN? That would have been Charlie Munger's theory. And instead of buying these um these okay companies on the cheap, let's buy the really good companies when they're fairly priced or acceptably priced, I think is what. And they went on to create, I, Rev, I guess, I mean, Reggie will be with us tomorrow, and I may get Reggie to give an opinion on this. I mean, they, they were the best investors of their time. I think I read yesterday that um of the, I don't know, of the, the 150 of the 200 years they were a team, and I mean, literally, what was Muff Buffett? 97, he's 96. Up he's up there. Yeah, but he's like 95 or six years old. And Munger passed away at 99, nearly 100 years old. And they were still actively pursuing businesses. Um, Munger said a month ago that they were sitting on $160 billion in cash for a large purchase. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they had $60 billion um, after 2008. They bought into railroads and whatnot. Anyway, it's just... um. He was the guy, If when Warren Buffett passes away, it won't just be on CNBC and Bloomberg. I mean, it'll be on CNN. It'll be on Fox. It'll be on all these other stations. Munger was the guy in the back. You know, he was the drummer in the band and didn't seek the limelight or, or fame or, I mean, obviously he seek the fortune, and he, he died an unbelievably wealthy, wealthy man. Um, but Buffett said yesterday there would not be a Berkshire Hathaway if not for I'm Charlie Munger, and most believe it's Buffett's baby. You know, Berkshire is Buffett's baby. Nah, Berkshire is Buffett and Munger's baby, almost equally. And Charlie Munger did something that would be hard for a man with a big ego to do. Warren, you get out front. I mean, I'm good. You're more charismatic than I am. You have a lot better personality than I do. If you get a minute, Josh, go on YouTube's and Google, uh, not now, but I mean, as, as the day progresses, Go on YouTube and um, Charlie Munger quotes. Charlie Munger, um, you know, live. I mean, he says some of these. Uh, that's of all. It's a little bit farce gumpy. You know, Warren gives a 20-minute answer at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, and and then Warren, Warren will take a sip of They're They're big into Coke. I mean, that's where we was part ways. We're big into Pepsi. They were big shareholders in Coke. But he'll take a sip of his soft drink, and he'll say, Charlie, you got anything to add? He said, ah, you did good. I mean, that's, that's, that's enough. I mean, you know, Buffett gives a 20-minute answer on some kind of P&L question about Berkshire and why they didn't do this and why did you buy an Adidas and not Nike? And Buffett goes into P&Ls and, uh, you know, you know uh, uh, profit earnings ratios and whatnot. Then he'll say, Charlie, got anything to add? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. That's about it.
Charlie, uh, uh, Warren covered that. Warren covered that pretty good. But but he, came, he coined the phrase "wise assery." You know, just yep. how, how many how many wise asses are there in finance? <laughs> um, try, try to take a company and then trying to inflate its value. He said the reason they had been successful, as successful as they've been. Here's what he said. You ready? We just weren't as stupid as everybody else. <laughs> I'm thinking about what he said. We just didn't make as many dumb mistakes as everybody else. It's kind of, it's, I don't know, it's, it's the simpleton. And uh, he's, I don't say he's a hero of mine, but I've always held Charlie Munger in, in high, high, high regard. Uh, obviously a bright, bright, bright man and a great financier, but but also a guy who said, I don't need the bright lights. I don't need the, the fame. I'll take the fortune, but I'll let, I'll let Warren uh, have the bright lights and the, uh, and the fame. So I wanted to try to find a statistic here just since we're talking about it. And I'm not sure what the source is and if it's accurate, but I'll go ahead and tell you what I read here. Since 1964, Berkshire Hathaway has produced 3,787,464% total returns for investors. Wow. That's not a typo. It means that $10,000 investment in Berkshire Hathaway at that time in 1964 would be worth $379 million today. <laughs> and they did it by not being as stupid as everybody else. So says Charlie Munger, we just, we just didn't do as many dumb things as everybody as everybody else does. So anyway, Godspeed to Charlie Munger and his family. Um, I don't know how much longer Warren Buffett will be with us, but he's 95-ish, 96-ish. Um, but it's kind of a um, – th- there was a lot of – uh, reflection on CNBC and Bloomberg yesterday because they, you know, nearly all of the talk it is and pundits in that world held him in high regard and looked up uh, to the now late great uh, Charlie Munger in Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Josh said something this morning to me that someone at the radio station and I had some things here prepared, but I want to I want to go down this road for just a second if you'll allow. Um, somebody one one of our bosses came in yesterday and said. Josh, when Ken's talking about all the expensive, you know, houses and cars and whatnot, but it's got to be discouraging um, to you. And I thought about that. I mean, is it, is it, is it our job to be uplifting, but dishonest? No, I mean, of course not. I mean, it's our job to call a strike, a strike and a ball or ball as we see it. Do umpires miss strikes? Of course they do. Do umpires, you know, a foul ball, fair ball? Do that? Of course. I mean, umpires are human beings. They make mistakes. I could very well be wrong about the debt bubble that I think will eventually explode or implode and cause great financial chaos to Josh's generation, not so much to mine. I mean, we'll deal with it, but the majority of my financial decisions lie behind. I mean, I've got some to make. There's no doubt about it. I've got some others to make, uh, you know, as I hope I live 25 more years, 30 more years. So I've got uh, some decisions to make, but I've got somewhat of a foundation in place. I mean, I've got some water under the bridge, so to speak. Josh doesn't have any of that. My kids don't have any of that. None of my three kids have any water under the bridge when it comes to figuring out their financial futures. I mean, they're 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 all well. My daughter's in college. My boys are working. They're making a little bit of money. I mean, they they're beginning to want to make a little bit more money, and that's kind of a good sign, you know. When you when you I remember saying to my dad, you know, it's not about the money. I mean, I, I just want to be happy and find some balance in life and some contentment in life and. The next thing you know, you make a little bit of money and go, that's not enough. I need to make a little more, you know, to find a little more balance and contentment. If I only had that car or, or that trip or that, you know, seat at the Gamecock Stadium, I could be a little more content and find a little more balance in my life. So I think one of the parts is beginning to say, okay, I'm working and earning money. I'm willing to work a little harder and earn a little more. So, so when I said those things yesterday and we walked through a series of um, numerics, 
that I think are reality, and I think Josh's generation, my kids, will will have to deal with complications that I didn't. And and I don't remember how I felt about money at 25 or 6 years old. I really don't. I mean, I got married at 24. So, you know, I I was forced to grow up. Uh, I played around from, what, 18 to 24. Well, I really played around 18, 26. But um, I tell people my (laughs) wife has been married 37 years. I've been married about 35. Uh, first two years, I wasn't real good at the marriage part of it. I didn't understand that, um, you know, you don't do what you want to do when you want to do it, <laughs> you know, however uh, you want to do it. But anyway, I just, I want to go back through some of this because I sent an email last night to some realtor buddies of mine and they pushed back. Um, it, it was as if I hit a nerve. There's an article in the wall street journal and the wall street journal is talking about some of what we discussed yesterday the imbalance, the disproportionality of a house payment and your income and a car payment and your income and these rules of thumb. You know, the the mortgage can only be, what, 30% of your uh, net income or gross income. I don't know if it's net or gross. I've never paid much attention to that. I just kind of in my head knew what I could afford to buy and knew where uh, money I had coming in and money I had going out. And in my head, I'm like, 28%, I don't know, 22%, I don't know. 34% 34% gross is the, what the standard is. 30% of gross yeah, income. Yeah. I read this morning. That's exactly what it is. But I didn't know that. I didn't know if it was gross or net. I knew it was somewhere around a third. But today, the only way that formula holds is if houses decrease in value by 25% or income increases by 25%. So when we start talking about the state of housing and how important it is in our economy, it's probably the single biggest sector of our economy, housing. I mean, it, it has so much impact on, I mean, lumber yards and loggers and construction companies and truck body manufacturers. I mean, the housing market's unhealthiness causes a lot of problems in a lot of different places in our economy. And on the other side, I kind of want to touch on, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to paint a doom and gloom picture, but but I'm trying to be fundamentally honest about and, and when I sent the email, that in it was a Wall Street Journal article, got about three or four, you know, realtor friends of mine that we talk about things like this. And it was as if, you know, I hit a nerve. And it surprised me. I mean, it really did because I don't know how you argue against two plus two equals four. I really don't. I mean, I understand your profession and you're very guarded about your profession and you're very uh, influenced by certain forces that paint a rosier picture than I think is normal. But I want I want to walk through some of what we touched on yesterday toward the end of the show. I told get, you, my son sent a text when you were on that rant, and he said, man, he's scaring me. Well, I mean, let's stay there for a second. Uh, this is for our younger generation. Once again, Rev, you and I still have financial decisions to make, but we've made a lot that's kind of got us here. The, the, the decisions we made in our past have allowed us to be where we are or forced you to be where you are. And there's, you know, there's fewer options that lie ahead. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Let's go back to this because I want to get Josh's take on this because when Reb said his son um, texted him there says, hey, stop that. I mean, you're freaking me out. You're scaring me to death about, you know, what financial future I may or may not have. I want to go back through what this is the, um, this would have been the, the genesis of the conversation. I read over the weekend, um, that the median wage earner, that, that that can be a bit misleading because everybody's not a wage earner. 
right? I mean, there, there are people who have a lot of different, I mean, I wouldn't be a wage earner. I mean, I'm an independent contractor to a radio station. I get paid a salary to do this job, but I've got three partners and we develop some property and we speculate on some land and, and, and we do some consulting. And so I wouldn't be uh, a wage earner per se. The majority of people are wage earners. Remember the, um, remember the time I told you listeners about the speech I gave when I was running for Lieutenant Governor at the Poinsettia Club in Greenville when I felt that I had sung Born to Run about as good as I could. I mean, I really felt I'd nailed Born to Run. And I get into my car to go back to our next, wherever the event was, and Kahaley said, that was the dumbest speech you ever gave in your life. <laughs> so what do you mean? I mean, that, that was, I mean that, man, I talked about ROI and NOI and, you know, P&L and, you know, and Robert said, man, how many people run businesses? I mean, the majority of people work at businesses. They don't run businesses. That would be the wage earner. It's not an insult. You're probably happier by not running a business and getting a paycheck every two weeks. But um, but the median wage earner in America today earns about $41,000. Now, now, we know that because of inflation and what we aspire to be and the, the, um, the bells and whistles we like to have, two parents are normally working. I mean, that's just the average American family. Not in every case, but the average American family, I think I saw where it's about 1.77. So about two parents are working in almost every American family. That means that if there are two wage earners, you got about $82,000 gross coming in the door, Josh. Let's apply 20% tax rate. Let's just say state and federal, you get some write-offs, you get the mortgage exemption, you get child care, blah, blah, child credit, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, Uncle Sam's getting about, between Uncle Sam and the state government, they're getting about 20% of your money. So you're netting out about sixty-five, six, uh, about $65,600. That's about $5,500 a month. I mean, that sounds okay, right? I mean, $5,500 a month, that, that ain't bad. I mean, in, in my youth, I would have, oh, man, I can't imagine, you know, making $5,500 a month um, coming in the door. Net, I'm talking about net. So, so that sounds like a reasonable amount of money to go out and pursue the American dream. But, but, but it's not the average mortgage in America today. And Rev was, I mean, I think Rev said 1600. Didn't you say 15 or 16? I, I guessed 11 or 1200. Okay. But the average mortgage in America today is $2,200. I mean, it's, I've seen some stats recently and I'm talking about national realtors association post COVID post, you know, the interest rate staying at two or 3%, <coughs> excuse me, or 2,800. I mean, that, that's, that, that's a surprising number to me. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew it would be higher than 11 or 12. I mean, I did. I thought when Riv said that, no, it's higher than that. It's 20, so let's say $2,500 is the average mortgage. Now, you got to think Florence, Sumter, Orangeburg, th- those are, you know, th- those aren't big markets. Those aren't, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, th- those aren't hotly contested markets. There's not a huge demand for housing in Sumter, Orangeburg, and Florence. The one tailwind we have is in South Carolina, and it's a growing state. Now, now the coast would be a little bit different. I, I would imagine. Um, there's less inventory and more sales uh, along some of these hotter um, areas. But the average mortgage is 2500 The average auto payment, car payment, $729 per the National Auto Dealers Association. Bank rate says it's 739 So they're pretty close one to another. We know the average. I mean, if both of you are working, you got to have cars, right? So let, let's say mom's driving a nicer car because dad, you know how we men are. I mean, we're givers and altruistic, and we don't want things our way. We'd rather our, our female companions be taken care of. So you've got the, the wife at a $729 a month car. The man's driving something less than that.
but they're still a thousand dollars a month in two car payments. So you got twenty five hundred for a house payment. You've got a thousand dollars a month in car payments. You got fifty five hundred net coming in the door. You got thirty five hundred going out of the door on shelter and transportation. I mean, we've not talked about power bills or insurance or or taxes or you know childcare or groceries. I mean, it's not what you'd love to have. We're not talking about a trip to the Bahamas. We're talking about staples. We're talking about groceries and childcare and clothes and you know insurance and taxes. You got two grand a month to take care of all those other necessities in life. I didn't say amenities. These are necessities in life. So what's happening in America is we're you know the average family saying, "Man, I'm doing okay. I got fifty five hundred dollars a month between my wife and I coming in the door." And we're broke. I mean, we don't have any money because the house payment is is, is, a, is a multiple of, um, I read yesterday, because I went back and did some research, for the majority of American history, the price of a home has been between three and three and a half times your average income. So if you're making 50 grand a year, if the median income in America is 50 grand a year, the house is a buck 50. Excuse me, maybe a buck seventy-five, but now we're at about eight multiples. I mean, we, you know, the average mortgage in America today is north of three hundred. Let me say that again, because it's hard for me to believe that the average mortgage in America today is over three hundred thousand dollars. I've seen it as low as three hundred seven. I've seen it seen it as high as three thirty-one, depending on what sort of research they did to gather the information. But that's Excuse me, that's where we are. So I'm struggling here. I'll get me a lozenge, a cough drop back in my throat here in just a couple of seconds. But, but Josh, what, is that discouraging to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, you know, my dad, he talks, he's been talking about this stuff for years. So I've kind but of. But would you rather not know? It. Would you rather, would honestly, you rather, would you rather get married, you know, have 55, you know, you and your wife got 5,500 coming to the door? And you're going like, wow, man, we could do kind of sort of what we want. I never imagined I'd make that much money. Now we're doing okay. She's got a good job. I got a decent job. We got this much money coming in the door. I mean, we can't live like Rockefellers or Trumps, but we can live okay. No, you can't. You honestly can't. When you go out and price a home, price a car, you're, you're back on skid row. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not pleasant to think about. I'm in the same camp as Dave's son where, I mean, honestly, my thoughts at the moment are – that that's nowhere mortgaging a home is nowhere near on my radar as far as i'm concerned how i'm doing right now renting forever if if you know if i stay in this same bracket but rents are going to go crazy or they're gone crazy they've gone well, crazy i'm I'm, but, but, I'm casing nice houses at but, the moment but, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, but the rent doesn't come along with insurance and right. taxes and yeah. ownership and, right and uh, you know operating and maintaining it, it discouraging home. it's very discouraging and yeah, he, my- and conceptually, okay, but here's what has happened, guys. There, there, there are five trillion dollars in non-housing debt. The American consumer is five trillion dollars in non-housing debt today. In 2003, when we started kind of tabulating some of this, it was about 1.6 or 1.7 trillion. So we've added, and and a trillion we've admitted is an unfathomable number. Hadn't we called it a supernatural number? Yeah. I mean, a trillion's a supernatural number. But we've gone from 1.6 trillion to $5 trillion in non-housing loans. 
And and I believe, because I'm looking at some of the delinquencies on credit card debt, I mean, you've seen this, we're over a trillion dollars in revolving credit. And now the rate's not 16.5%, it's 22.5%. And I, I don't know how we believe there's not some day of reckoning waiting around the corner. I, I just don't understand that. And when I when I send an article to real estate agents, and really just trying to say, hey, here's kind of sort of what I see kicking. And they just respond, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about it. it it's bad for my bit. I don't want to hear it. Don't, are, are we better off avoiding the inevitable? By, by that, I mean not talking about it and wake up one day and the world's blowing up right before our very eyes? Or, or are we better off having conversations about here's where we are, here's where it looks like we're headed, and here's the impossibility, the impossibility of that not causing financial grief and chaos. Take a break. Back in a few. I want to apologize for some of the on-air coughing. You just got to deal with it. I mean, it is what it is. I got some good cough drops here on my on my counter a uh, couple of days ago. Got kind of a head cold set in, and it's been a bugger for the last uh, couple of days. So if I begin coughing or Josh starts talking randomly, <laughs> I've kind of motioned him, hey, I got to give you some water yeah, say or something. something. Say something. Say something. Cover, cover for me cover. for a second or two. But, you know, of course, the uh, I guess it's the recipe of honey bourbon, and lemon juice. If you work on something like that, it may help your throat. That's the old radio, the old radio. Can, can I confide in elixir. you? Can I confide in you? I mean, in front of our listeners, at the Kentucky tailgate, one, one of my good friends <laughs> runs Mickey Fins, uh, and you know where I'm headed. Oh here. yeah, this is great. One, one of my good friends owns Mickey, owns Mickey Fins, and he and I are, are loyal Gamecocks, and he's helped us on the the podcast. And uh, Rick Havacost has just been a good friend to me and a good supporter of what we try what we try to do. Um, it's hard to talk booze early in the morning. I mean, he knows we got a big listenership. Uh, it's just hard to say, hey, go get your bourbon first thing this morning. You didn't get your, your sausage biscuit. But but Rick brings us, um, and you've you've um, you've indulged yourself at my tailgate mm-hmm. with some really good bourbon. Yep. And he'll say things like, well, try this bourbon, and try this bourbon, and try this other bourbon. Well, at the Kentucky game, well, where, where's the bourbon trail? It's at Kentucky, right? <laughs> so at the Kentucky true. game, we, we, um, we go down the road of pure proof bourbon. Now, that, that's odd to me. I mean, that pure-proof bourbon, what does that mean? Uh, my, my indulgence is Jefferson's Ocean, right? I mean, that's when I, when I roll out the red carpet and I want to live like a Rockefeller, I go by Mickey Finn's and get me a bottle of Jefferson's Ocean. But this stuff that Rick has been supplying me with, I think, is even better than, than Jefferson's Ocean. So um, we have a tailgate at the Kentucky game, and Sunday morning, uh, we're just not as active as we normally are after the game. <laughs> <laughs> 10 o'clock gets here, and there's still no text about the game. And then 11 gets here. And you're like, Is dead? I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> so we found out the hard way that there's a big difference in like 80 or 90 proof bourbon and 375,000 proof <laughs> pure proof uh, bourbon. And, uh, and and my son still laughs. I won't quote it exactly. I said, I said, man, we pouring that stuff. We pouring half that stuff in a Yeti cup. I mean, you can't pour half Yeti, half of that Yeti. I mean, that's gasoline. You know what I mean? That's high test. People my age know what I'm talking. That's you found high out, test. huh? You better believe we found out. Um, and maybe this um, th- this cold I'm dealing with is the cleansing of my system because <laughs> I, I told my son, you'll appreciate this, Rev. I, I told my son, I said, son, that's the kind of bourbon you pour over one block of ice and read a book and sip about sip one it. sip an hour. You know, and let it yeah. the aroma and 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 the taste Enjoy and the, the front of the tongue right. and the back of the tongue. Right. You don't pour that stuff in a Yeti cup, <laughs> a thirty-two ounce Yeti cup half full without um 
without meeting the other side of whatever. Now, but what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is, yes, I was at the Kentucky tailgate, but I never saw that special bottle. Where where was that? Well, because mean, I, I, you have you have your tailgate was so good, and there was so <laughs> there was much, a lot of people there, a lot of people, a lot of. Food, I told my son, I said, put that good stuff in the trunk. I, I never saw it. I mean, I, I mean, I did see this <laughs> Jefferson's Ocean. I said, you put, know? That, put that real good stuff in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> These people that drink all our good stuff. Well, the, the truth, I wish they had drunk it. Uh, whatever pure proof means. He paid the price. Here's my words of advice. You ready? When it says pure proof, don't pour a Yeti cup half full of it. And, and fill it the rest with it'll diet. It'll catch up with you. It, yeah, it, it'll um, it'll drunk you, as we like to say in the uh, in the country. Well, well, well thanks, thanks for uh, sharing that story. So, but now now that you've sufficiently freaked everybody out with the talk about the the money and expenses and cost of mortgage, et cetera, and, and yes. You're scaring people. We've gotten some responses that said you're scaring people and freaking people out. But, uh, you know, I don't like offering problems without solutions. So have you thought about what can be done or what is the fix for the problem? In in housing, the price of a house has to decrease by 25% or the median wage earner has to make 25% more. I mean, and I'm basing this off of 5% interest. I mean, I I don't want to base it off an 8%. I don't want to base it off a 3%. It, let's say it at 5% interest in today's world, where we are, where we sit right now, the average wage earner could afford a house if it were 25% less or they made 25% more. Now, now what's more likely the, the business owner agreeing to give every wage earner in his business a 25% raise or the home enjoying a 25% or not enjoying, but I mean, you know, be, be a victim of a 25% haircut. I mean, that, that's kind of where we are. It's not, most of these issues aren't that complicated. Well, excuse me. They're not that simple. It, it's complicated to work, but you know what the math says. I mean, the math says that people are living paycheck to paycheck. Some aren't able to get paycheck to paycheck. So they're going on revolving credit, you know, lines and they're, and I'm not talking about equity lines. I mean, that would be a, a housing associated loan. We've gone from 1.6 to $5 trillion in non-housing loans. That's the only way people are getting to the other side. Uh, I don't know the number, but I'd be interested in what percentage of revolving credit debt is getting the minimum payment every month. I mean, I'd be very interested in that. But no, Rev, I mean, the answer is for housing to come down by 25% or the average wage earner make 25% more. Let's go to the phone. Jason in Marion. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Kane. Good morning, Dave. Uh, I don't really have anything political this morning, but you were just talking about uh, bourbon and stuff and that Jefferson's Ocean, but I don't know if you ever tried that Buffalo Trace, but that is some damn good whiskey, uh, bourbon. Um, and it's, supposedly there's quite some history behind that. Is They're the oldest distillery in America, all the way back to 1789, I believe. And they even survived the Prohibition fiasco with uh they were able to use it for medicinal purposes so i'm not sure if that's been on your palate yet but if it hasn't you definitely need to try that one good deal i'll check it out i will say this the majority the majority of good bourbon came after the civil war people believed i mean life was brutal enough in the civil war and then surely they didn't have to drink rot gut bourbon i mean you know when the soldiers had a little bit of time off i mean we know how much savagery there was in the Civil War, um, one of the one of the interesting things I saw, I told Rev this yesterday, and we'll take a break. I'm um, Josh. A one steak sauce. If you look at the at the bottle just above A one, it says established 1862. 
1861, somewhere thereabout. So in the middle of a civil war, <laughs> somebody decided we needed a better steak sauce. <laughs> but on the other side of the civil war is when a lot of the better brand bourbons, I mean, the bourbons Maker's Mark would be, I mean, the story of Maker's Mark, the, the, the great, I mean, I, I listened to the great, great, great grandson of the founder of Maker's Mark, and that was why he did it. Uh, you know, he heard so many complaints about the, the bad bourbon of the war, and he wanted to age bourbon and, you know, properly distilled, bur- all these other good. But bourbon is kind of a, I mean, it's a craft. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And, and, and once again, I'm not a, a distiller. I'm not a, a master brewer by any stretch of the imagination. But, but I will give this friendly advice. If it says pure proof, don't pour your Yeti cup half full. <laughs> believe it. Yeah, believe it. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our non- number. Um, Hunter Biden agrees to testify publicly in a House Oversight Committee. If I'm not mistaken, sometime December thirteenth, maybe the date that they've um, settled on. I don't know if we've got it settled yet, but uh, his lawyer told the House Oversight Committee yesterday that President Biden's son is willing to testify. Um, I think what they're saying is the Republicans have basically controlled the narrative. Let's get it out in the public and let them decide who's telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, is that a is that an accurate analysis? Yeah, for the most part, yes. So essentially the, the legal team for Hunter Biden wants to, to testify publicly, but this is kind of not exactly what the Oversight Committee is asking for. What the Oversight Committee has subpoenaed them for is they want a closed-door deposition, and then they'll take a public hearing uh, at a later date. But it just appears that Hunter Biden's legal team is not really open to that closed-door hearing. They want this thing to be public. And why would the Republicans be opposed to a public hearing being the first time? Well, this is, you know, something that they've done with, with just about all of their witnesses based off what Comer has said. This is what he believes uh, legitimate investigations do is that they have these closed door depositions. And if they want to bring the person back for a public hearing at a later date, they do that. And they've done that with just about every witness. And Comer kind of had a, a response to, to Hunter Biden's legal team saying that, you know, you don't get to make the rules. You're not above the law and you're not above everybody else. Everyone else is sat for closed door depositions during this investigation, you have to do the exact same thing. So that's kind of the argument Comer's been making. But, you know, Hunter Biden's legal team, they want this thing to be public. So if the Biden legal team does not agree to a closed-door meeting, will there be the public meeting? Uh, I, I think we have to wait and see what the, what the Oversight Committee is willing to do and what they kind of come to an agreement with with Hunter Biden's lawyers. You know, I think that's kind of a question that we're trying to wait on is, are you, would you be willing to compromise and just have it be public, or is this, you know, a deal breaker for you? So uh, I think those are kind of questions we don't have the answers to just yet. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much, as always. I think it's very good strategy for the Hunter Biden team to agree to appear public. Um, we don't want to do it behind closed doors. Let's get it out of the open. Uh, now, I don't – will he plead the fifth to every question asked? I don't know. Don't have any idea. But I do believe that – um allowing the Republicans on the oversight committee to have these meetings behind closed doors and then come out and tell the public what they choose to tell the public is not in the Biden team's best interest. I'm concerned that they've not been able to establish a credible fact pattern that the money actually ends up with Joe Biden. I mean, I'm really really beginning. I mean, I think there's a lot of shenanigans here. I mean, I think it's disgusting and disgraceful 
and the Biden family trafficking and the, you know, the, um, I don't know, the, the power and authority of the United States government. I mean, they, I don't know if anybody can be supportive of that, but, but I still believe, I, I believe they have come short thus far. I mean, there, there may be something else out there. Now, now, do I believe the president has been favored financially? And some of these trains, I do. I, I really believe that. You think they did a good job of covering their tracks. I, I think they did a really good job mm. of making sure the money goes in big circles to end up in somebody else's bank account. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Ken, at the top of the hour, you said the government taxes approximately half of our income, I believe, regard, and then also the rest of the money is devalued. And then a lot of people will call that incompetence. I don't call it incompetence. I call them doing exactly what they want to do. And another thing, I don't believe they want people to own homes. I really don't. I think what they want to do is they want to go with the Chinese or the Russian model where everybody is in these huge, huge apartment buildings in the cities where they control us. I also know that they're doing more facial recognition. And I know they're really pushing this fiat currency. And they want to have that everybody have one big central bank. And I heard Glenn Beck say yesterday that uh, guys like you and him, if y'all don't toe the line to what they expect you to say or do, because they're also talking about this misinformation. Well, as things stand right now, the government we have, 95% of the stuff you say would be considered misinformation. So Glenn Beck was saying he doesn't think within four years Guys like y'all will even be able to talk about anything, you know, quote unquote, a conspiracy that be called a conspiracy theory, or be called misinformation, and they'll just shut you down. And I was just uh, wondering what you thought about that. But I have one other point too. You know, when we were coming up, kids, most of our friends, even rich folks, lived in modest homes. Then all of a sudden, you started seeing everyday average Americans living in four or five thousand square foot houses for a family of three. So in a way, we kind of brought some of this on ourselves. I can't disagree with that. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, the, the home has been, I mean, I, I guess it's long been a status symbol. But but these McMansions and these 5,000-square-foot homes that you're, you're kind of scratching your head like he works there and she works there. And, I mean, you don't know exactly what they make, but you have a pretty good idea, suspicion of what they're making. But um, but, but the, the point I try to bring about about Josh's generation because of our inability to constrain spending and to restrain ourselves. I mean, we've shown absolute zero ability to be financially responsible as a, as a nation. I mean, I'm talking about in, in the public sector and the private sector. I mean, we got $5 trillion worth of non-home associated debt. Um, we've agreed that, that a trillion is kind of a supernatural number. It's almost unfathomable. A billion's a thousand million. A trillion's a thousand billion. I mean, it's just it really a trillion seconds ago, um, 33,000 years. Um, so it's, I mean, it, I know that's a weird way to try and explain a number, but there is no number supernatural. It's a definable, tangible figure. We know that one trillion plus one trillion equals two trillion. We know that we're somewhere in the neighborhood of $33 trillion in federal debt. But, but I do believe that, that when we say trillion, we don't grasp the enormity of the number. And and when I saw that we were in 2003, 20 years ago, we were 1.6 trillion in non-home loan debt. Now we're at 5 trillion in non-home loan debt. 
Uh, I don't know what the, delinqu- the, the delinquency rate is. I know it's increasing. Uh, you know, past 30 days is increasing. Uh, and, I, and I just, the only correction that you can make, and I look, uh, Keynesian economists, modern monetary theorists, classical or neoclassical liberal economy, there's a lot of different economic theories out there. But, but ultimately, math is math. I mean, it, it really, ultimately, math is math. And the home has become more unaffordable than it ever has in our nation's history. And I'm not blaming builders. I'm not blaming real estate agents. I'm not blaming developers. I'm not blaming people that want to move to South Carolina. I mean, it is what it is. But, but the reality is, unless the average wage earner gets a raise of 25% or the home decreases in price by 25%, it's going to remain unaffordable. What's going to change that? I mean, other than those two dynamic, what changes? I mean, if, if the house needs to cost 30% of gross pay, and right now it's about 50% more than that, and for that to get in line, and that's been historical, historically where the banks like this to be. You know, your credit worthiness counts for something. Your income counts for something. Uh, your, your, your payment history, I guess, it plays into your credit worthiness. You know, what sort of um, financial world have you built for yourselves? And, and that comes out, you know, uh, and if you got a good relationship with the bank, they'll probably go 35%. I'm sure they will. They'll shelve some of the loans if they believe they're good loans. They'll put some of the, the other loans in bundles, and we get mortgage-backed securities and whatnot. I mean, I'm not saying it's as simple as, well, this is all that has to happen. But, but the it, interest rates being lower, obviously, would lower But the I'm payments. basing my numbers on 5% interest rates, okay. which, which I think is historically low. Yeah. I mean, I went through some numbers last night, and if you model at a 5% 30-year mortgage, for the home to meet the criteria that banks historically have said is an affordable loan or a good loan on an affordable home, the wage earner has to make 25% more or the house has to decrease in value by 25%. Now, the problem with supply, because I hear the people in the housing sector say, well, I mean, there's no supply. Well, the reason there's no supply, if Josh has a home financed at 3% and for him to move to a bigger home, he's got to pay 8%. Josh will sit tight. I mean, Josh is not going to make that big a financial mistake. I mean, he's not going to borrow money at 8% when he's already borrowed money at 3%. So that's another part of the conundrum. Now, government intervention, can the government intervene? I think the government's already intervening. I mean, I'm reading some numbers on the Fed now that don't make any sense. I mean, I'm told they're quantitative tightening by, by trying to unload or offload, is their word, offload $60 billion in debt every month. might be $80 billion. I think it's $60 billion. But I'm looking now... Uh, the Atlanta Fed basically said in its last meeting that because of some concern they have with regional banks and commercial real estate, that they're 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 distorting the economy again. I mean, they're doing some things other. Really? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're getting real creative, and they'll say, well, we're not really quantitative easing, but I think they are. Now, now once again, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. Take what I say for what it's worth. But it looks to me like that they're kind of back-ending quantitative uh, easing because they're concerned about some of the regional banks and some of the commercial uh, real estate. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Larry in the PD. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm actually gonna gonna take a slightly different take on it. That I'm gonna say I agree and I disagree. I don't think the price of housing is going anywhere. And if you look back, the only recession, believe it or not, where the price of real estate retreated was the 2008 recession, and it makes sense because it was we were led into recession by the real estate market. 
in the other cases, and if you look at the 80s, which is the most like, I think, the period of time we're living in now, the price of housing actually went up 6% uh, during that recession. The price of everything else went down. And that, I think, is the, the possibility that you're not looking at, is that housing could remain stable, but the price of everything else could go down, and you would have more, quote, money in your pocket because relative to everything else, you know, automobile prices, they're already going down. Um, the, the price of food and the price of gasoline, because when we hit a recession and the demand for those things goes away, then their prices will drop as well. So it, it, it will be more affordable to live, but not because of housing. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm making a bet on that. Um, the, the other thing is you say that the wages have to go up. Well, the big automakers just agreed to what? A 25% wage increase over a couple of years? So, you know, not to say that every employer is going to have to do it, but I do think you're seeing upward pressure on wages right now. So I'm, I'm just going to say I don't think it's going to be the housing market that's going to take it on the But, but how do you have upward pressure? I mean, if, if the auto workers are making more money and you argue the cut price of a car goes down, I, I don't see that. I mean, I don't see any. There, there's well, no economic way. Mostly, well, mostly, mostly used vehicles, but that's just how inflated the prices of everything are right now. But nothing now, has been as inflated as the price of a home. Well, I don't know that I agree with that, and we'll see. Um, but I'm banking on it. I'll tell you, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is on that because I believe when we hit recession, the uh, interest rates are going to go back down. And a lot of people, if, if they buy now, are going to be able to refinance then. But I think the prices are still headed upward. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. I, I just, I mean, Larry and I have a fundamental disagreement. I don't know. I mean, I understand what he's saying about, okay, we talked yesterday about the sub sandwich. I mean, does the $12 sub sandwich go back to $9? Okay, let's let's for for argument's sake, let's say Larry's right and it does. The twelve dollar sub goes back to nine. Uh the fifty dollar polo shirt goes back to forty. Um, there's more disposable income, but it doesn't change the the, the numeric equation the banks use that a home mortgage needs to be thirty percent of your wage earner. The only way to address that is for prices to go down on homes or wages to go up for workers. Now now could wages go up twelve and a half percent? And houses correct by twelve and a half percent. I mean, there's some out there that don't believe housing needs a correction. I, I do. I mean, I, you know, that's just me personally. And I read a lot about. It. Larry understands it. I mean, I'm not saying Larry's wrong and I'm right. I mean, you know, what, what did I say yesterday? Bond yields going up, equities going up. Guess what? Somebody's wrong. <laughs> I mean, so I don't know which side it's going to be, but but there there's a group of investors that believe bond yields are, you know, the best investment to make. And there are another group to say, you know, equities are. Um, I, I don't know the only, I mean, I'm not taking exception with Larry. The only the only issue I'll take with the comparison of the 80s to now, that there is no, there, there's no precedent here. I mean, there's no example in human history of a country, especially a country like the good old U.S. of A., increasing its M2 money supply by $7 trillion in a year and a half. I mean, that, you know, what, what sort of effect does that have on an economy? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows that. I mean, once again, there are a lot of smart people. There are a lot of wealthy people betting on both sides of the equation. There are bears and bulls. There are people buying bonds and people buying equities. I mean, that, you know, that's the great, uh, the, the great question in capitalism. Uh, we, we talked about Charlie Munger. Guess what Munger was? He was right more than he was wrong. Buffett was right more than he was wrong. Doesn't mean he was never wrong. 
Doesn't mean he was always right, but he was right many, many more times than he was wrong. And uh, and it's what really makes capitalism. For every buyer, there's a seller, right? I mean, if you're selling a, a barrel of oil or a, a you know a penny stock, I mean, you can't sell it unless there's a buyer. I just argue, and 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 I guess the concept of my argument, the central, the the, the central issue that I argue is, how do you increase? liquidity by $7 trillion and not expect inflation to be just through the roof. I mean, just rent, just like we've never, ever seen before. Well, if you increase M2 money supply by $7 trillion and inflation increases like never before, how does inflation not subside? How do we not correct? I mean, if, if housing was a part of an economy that, that asset appreciation was like it had never been before in human history, how do we not correct? That, that's my argument. How is there not a correction due if $7 trillion created? And, and how is housing exempt of that? I, I just, I mean, I, you know, I just disagree with Larry there. And then certainly uh, th- there would be a team that agrees with Larry and another team that, that disagrees. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You're on. Hey, uh, I, I think Larry's giving some dangerous information out there because this uh, this inflation ain't going away anytime fast. And now it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's just no doubt about it because there's too much reg- regulation cutting back productivity and there's too much money being dropped in the system that's already been dropped in the system. We haven't got the full effect of what's already dropped in yet. There's still about two and a half trillion dollars in the inflation. No, excuse me. There's about eight hundred billion dollars in the Inflation Reduction Act that hadn't made its way into the economy yet. Yeah, and that's absolutely most of that is burned money. It's not used for anything productive, and that's just. Uh, I, uh, the investors playing around and uh, the people that have, have the inside bids and all that. But uh, that, and uh, we have this drag of like 10 million illegals in the country plus everything else, which, shoot, over four years, that's a, a trillion dollar drag on the economy. And uh, that, I don't see how that, that inflation can go away. It's going, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, yes, I wish we would have a little deflationary period. And I wish Trump was president, and I wish uh, for unicorns and ice cream and Fourth uh, of July, sunny days. But uh, I don't, it's not going to – I don't see it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, J.P. Morgan's done a lot of work on this. And, I mean, you know, I, I, Big Wall Street Bank, take it for what it's worth. Are they trying to be sincere? <coughs> Excuse me. What are they motivated by? Uh, money's the answer. And what's the question? Is what they're motivated by. But remember the M2 money supply. And we, we tried to, I mean, we gave a bit of a t- t- tutorial on that, Rev, when we talked about the M2 money supply and what it is and, and how much it increased. I mean, it went, it increased by about a third. I mean, it went from $15 trillion to $22 trillion. That's about a third of an increase in liquidity. That much more money from October, excuse me, from March of 20 to about October of 20. Well, it's still going. So it would be, but when you look at housing, the the price of housing increased from October, uh, really from March in 2020 to October 2022, it increased by about 35 or 6 or 7%. I mean, there, there are different numbers out there floating around 35. Um, I've seen it as high as 40. 
but but it's it, most of the reports I've seen. J.P. Morgan has it at thirty five point one. So so in essence, the the price of a home went up about the same as the increase in liquidity. I mean, a home was hmm. worth X when the M two money supply was fifteen trillion dollars. When we increased the income, excuse me, when we when we increased the money supply by one third, the price of homes went up about 35%, one third. Um, I'm not saying every dollar devoted, um, but but a lot of people, I did read this. Uh, I think this is interesting. And and, and I want to say this, um, this is why you have trades. I mean, this is why you're short or long. This is why you have a bear or a bull. This is why you people buying bonds and people buying equities. Uh, you know, people have instincts. They have done a lot of research. We just said earlier, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett did it better than anybody. Um, or as well as anybody, uh, Bill Ackman, a hedge fund guy, does it better or as well as anybody. There are a lot of smart people that agree with Larry. There are a lot of smart people that agree with me. Um, I tend to break things down in a real simple fashion. Will the, the $10 sub go back to $6? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, will the, the $400,000 house go back to $320,000? I don't know. I, I don't have any idea. But, but I do know this, when you increase the money supply by a third and the price of a home goes up by a third, and then you begin decreasing the money supply, how does the home not, I mean, if the house went up in value commiserate to the increase in liquidity, how does the house not go down in value if we're taking $60 billion a month out of circulation? I mean, that's what the Fed's doing. What would a price of a home be? And this is where we get really in the weeds. And I don't know the answer to this. What would the price of a home be if the Fed didn't have $2.6 trillion of mortgage-backed securities on this ballot sheet? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I do know this, that if, if, I were, if I were running the Fed, the last thing I'd want on my balance sheet is mortgage-backed securities. It doesn't matter if they're good back, but good. I mean, remember the uh, quanti- uh, not quantitative. Remember the um, synthetic derivatives and the all the, the the bundling of mortgages and I mean that that's when 08 and the world melted down and everything blew up and the financial system almost uh, went south. I mean, we we all. I mean, from what I'm told and, and I've been told by people more informed than I that you know we were a day or two or three away from money not being in the ATM machines and the financial system freezing up. I don't have any idea if that's the truth or not. But um, but, but the argument that everything else is going down except housing, I, I just I, I don't agree with that. I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think housing may lead. I mean, if we have a era or, pay, or a, uh, a, a brief time of inflation, or excuse me, deflation, I think housing may lead that. I think housing may be the leading indicator of, uh, of, de- of deflation. So if the wage earner doesn't make more and the house stays the same, then housing remains unaffordable for most. And there's no motivation except the, the kind of the distorting of, of interest rates. And I don't want to say distorting, uh, the setting of interest rates. That would be uh, fair. But when I did my math this morning uh, and last night, I based it on a 5% interest rate. I mean, that's historically low. I mean, you know, really and truly probably should be about six and a half or maybe seven. I saw something about the abnormal high interest rates. I mean, this would have been from a kind of a real estate company talking about one of the big problems in in the housing sector is the abnormal high interest rates. It's about seven and a quarter today, seven and a half. That's not high. I mean, that's, that's, that's about average. 
but we convinced ourselves, and, and maybe Rev, a generation of builders, a generation of realtors, a generation of bankers have never worked outside of a 0% interest rate say, environment. It's high compared to what we're used to. Well, I mean, historically, but, but, but if you got in the business in 2008 or 9 or 10, your entire work life has been uh, with interest rates at about zero. 1%, 1.5%, Fed fund rate, one and three quarter, you know, kind of gyrating back and forth, n- never above 2%. And all of a sudden the Fed fund rates at what, five and a half, five and three quarter, and they're panicking in the streets because interest rates are abnormally high. They're not abnormally high. In fact, I would argue they're probably historically a little bit below average. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Hi, Bert. You're on. Well, I would have to say, I hope Larry's right, because in October, I bought a house, and it's 7%, which I almost didn't buy it because of that, but I went ahead and bought it, and I've been doing nothing every day but panicking about, why did I buy this house? Why did I do it? And I went from a house that was 2% to a house that's 7%. So I really hope he's right and something changes because that's part of what they used to convince me to buy this house was, oh, in a year, you know, it'll it'll change and you'll be able to refinance. So I really am keeping my fingers crossed for that and panicking until it happens. Thank you, Bert. Have we got ourselves in a place where 3% interest rate is not an option? The only way the economy chugs along is if interest rates are that low. Now, now, once again, you deal with inflation. I mean, the low interest rates increase liquidity. Macroeconomic stimulus leads to uh, rampant inflation. That's kind of a um, I mean, that's a fact pattern that we can trust in. Um, I, I just think we made a fatal mistake in believing that interest rates less than 3% on a 30-year mortgage are, are, are what to expect. And we built a housing market around that reality. And, you know, the Fed buys up um, $2.6 trillion in mortgage-backed securities um and i get it the housing market's important i mean it's more important than the sub sandwich market it's more important than the you know i'm thinking about is there a is there a uh, sector of our economy as important as housing probably not i mean it would probably be the most important sector in our economy but all i know is from march in 2020 to february of 2022 housing increased by 35 percent and the M2 money supply increased by about 35%. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. The problem, Larry's talking about pay raises, pay increases. I mean, I, I think a lot about that. Having run businesses in my life, I always wondered what, what I should be paying this person or that person or another person. Uh, some business operate on a 20% margin, some on a 10% margin, some on a 5% margin i hear the insurance industry talking about you know they operate on a two and a half percent margin Healthcare say they operate on a two and three four percent i mean i know there's a way you can doctor up numbers and make them appear to be something other than than what they really are um but the problem in america today and, and i'm talking about you know too much month at the end of the money the problem in america today i don't believe is income i mean it's inflation it's our inability to restrain spending or restrain ourselves and constrain spending. We've been woefully inadequate. I mean, we've been terrible at it, and there is a price to pay when we have that much debt, when we allow that much money to be infused into our economy in the name of just making sure we don't have a hard landing, making sure we don't have 
a recession. Recessions are corrections. And it's almost like, you know, since 2000, maybe 2001, Rev, since uh, 9-11, we made our minds up as a nation that it's better to avoid a recession. And I believe recessions are kind of a detoxing of the economy. I mean, they, they, they kind of reset the deck where it needs to be. Um, and then for whatever reason, we've been on about a 20-year run, and I think we prioritized just not having a recession. And I think recessions are necessary in normal economic cycles, and I think they kind of, um, uh, you know, that they, they they address some some bubbles, they address some asset appreciation that isn't realistic. I mean, I'll ask you a question. Uh, and, you know, forget realtors and home builders and whatnot. I mean, the house is a very important part of our mm-hmm. financial portfolio. I mean, do you believe your house is worth 39, 35% more today than it was two years ago? It seems very unnatural. I mean, it's, it's not, there's yeah. no way to, I mean, you can't defend it. Yeah. I mean, unless this is the anomaly of all anomalies and unless housing had gotten so far behind and, and I mean, asset if, appreciation. Because if you track, I mean, if you just look at the line and track the house values over time, let's say over, uh, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, 30 years, even long term. And, the, you know, the, it's, obviously they appreciate at a certain rate. And then to see the spike in the last few years, it does seem unnatural. My dad told me, and you guys have heard me speak of my dad many, 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 many times. My dad was probably the savviest man I've ever known in my life. Not highly educated by any stretch. But in, in my early days of becoming an adult, we talked about homes and whatnot. And my dad always said, son, a house is an asset. I mean, a house is a liability. A house is something you live in. I mean, don't you ever think you're going to build a house, buy a house, and, and make it your piggy bank. I mean, you're just not going to do that. That's impractical. That's irresponsible. That's not good, good sound, you know, uh, finance. Um, my dad would always say, when you wake up in the morning, flush the toilet, you know, turn the water on, you're spending money. When the sun comes up and starts shining on your, your roof, you're spending money. When you open that door, that's another open and close of the hinge of that door and the knob of that door. Everything in that house is wearing out every single day. It's not an asset. And he would always say to my dad died in 04, so he didn't see all this craziness. But my dad would say, a house is something you live in and you, you take care of. But, it, but it's, it's not an asset. It's not something to put at the pot top of your financial portfolio. Now, yeah, of course there is the example of, you know, um, my, my great-granddaddy built a house out by the highway, and my granddaddy built one beside his, and now Walmart or, or Target wants that land or some shopping center or hotel. Of course that's – but, I mean, is that what we're banking on? I mean, are, are you banking on buying a home in the right place that it appreciates 34% a year? Or two years, I mean, that's 17.5% annual asset appreciation. That's impractical. There's nothing about history that says that's normal. The, the only reason homes increase 38%, depending on what report, 35% J.P. Morgan, the only reason is there was that much more liquidity available. And then the consumer, the person who's trying to buy a home, had a little more cash. I mean, there, you know, um, the, the, what were the two acts? The CARES Act and then the American Rescue Plan and then the, Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, they just mailbox people money. And all of a sudden, somebody making forty-one grand a year gets an extra, you know, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars in some sort of government subsidy. I mean, it was crazy what we did. I mean, I, you know, I often talk about the circles we drew in parking lots and the plastic bubbles we put up. Uh, remember the Biden uh, fundraiser 
or not the Biden, but the Biden rally. Right. When they had the circles drawn in yep. parking lots and people couldn't get out of their car. I'm like, like, what the hell? I mean, what in, did we lose our minds? But then you take that because that's a, that's an optic. I mean, that's a visual people in church sitting in plastic cubicles. You know, you can't sit. You got to sit every fifth chair, every eighth chair. And then you got, you know, I mean, it, it was weird. It was crazy what we had done. And I do believe that there's a, a kind of a, a, a demented man or woman somewhere that said, Hey, wonder if they'll stand in these circles. Wonder if they'll get in these little glass tubes. Wonder if they'll let us build these glass walls around these little small children in, uh, in kindergarten. And we did. We did because we've been conditioned to conform. So that's the optic of COVID. But there was another story to COVID. And it, it's the M2 money supply. $15 trillion, houses are worth X. Cars are worth X. $22 trillion, what, what are houses worth? What, what, are, what are cars worth? What is a sub sandwich at your favorite diner worth? I, I don't think we have any idea. Well, it, it would be interesting to ask this question. And I've asked this. Um, in Horry County, in Georgetown County in particular, I mean, I go down there a lot, and that's where you've seen just craziness. I mean, just absolute craziness happen. So there's a certain house that I know of, and it's been, I've seen that house in the last 10 years priced from $350,000 to $1,100,000. I mean, imagine that, guys. Mm. I mean, there's no way that's real. You can't, I mean, I don't give a damn how good you are at real estate or building or commercial development. You can't rationalize that. I've seen that house go from 350 to six, back to 450, back to seven, back to 550. And in the last two years, I've seen it north of a million dollars. So, so here's my fundamental question. You ready? What's that house worth? I don't think anybody has any idea. I mean, it depends on how activist the Fed is. What is the interest rates? You know, what, what sort of quantitative tightening or easing are they doing? I don't think most people get in the weeds that much. I mean, I think if you walked up to the man on the street and said, hey, did you know that quantitative easing created all this inflation? Get out of my I don't know what you're talking about, man. I mean, leave me alone. Let me be. Um, I didn't go to Yale or Harvard or Dartmouth or Princeton, but all this affects our lives. I mean, every quantitative easing has an absolute impact on your life. Quantitative tightening, the Fed buying $2.6 trillion in mortgage-backed securities and keeping that debt on their balance sheet, that impacts your life. And it, and it really goes back to Josh's comments about, you know, a benevolent dictator or a, a, a practical emperor, you know, s- somebody who just is a reasonable person in charge of everything. Coming around, are you? Well, I mean, I, I, there, there's a lot of beauty to that. I mean, when, when the public becomes so gullible, so conforming, so naive, so oblivious to the facts, I mean, Josh, if you walked up to the man on the street and said, do you know what quantitative easing is? And he said, no, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And you explain quantitative easing and you explain how it affects the, the housing market, the, the financial markets, the, the interest rates and all these other sorts of things, he'd still move on. I mean, he'd still move past that. He's, I don't, I don't know, man. All I know is I hear houses are real expensive now. My brother-in-law tried to buy one. I just think for democracies and well, self-government, I mean, let's call it that. I think for self-government to work, we've got to be committed to understand certain things. Self-government will work if we get off our dead asses and pay attention to things that we should be paying attention to instead of spending so much of our energy paying attention to things that don't matter much at all. Take a break. Back in a few. Remember the guy that ran for New York City Council and the campaign was the rent's too damn high? Yep. 
And he, whatever, whatever question he was asked, Josh, his answer was the rent's too damn high. And I mean, Turns out he was laughed, right. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Everybody <laughs> laughed at him and he was, he had some sort of weightlifting gloves that he wore and he was a, he was a different looking dude, kind of a, kind of a, um, an African-American Colonel Sanders look to him, <laughs> you know, a little bit of a goatee and kind of, um, brown, I mean, excuse me, grayish looking, looking hair. And his, and his whole shtick was, you know, the rent's too damn high. People can't afford to do much of anything after they pay the rent. Well, that's kind of where we've got with housing. And I want to make crystal clear. I'm not blaming anybody for any of this. There's such a sensitivity in society today that if you say something about a sector of the economy, the realtors get offended, the builders get offended, the developers get offended. Um, I, I guess it's my job to just be quiet about anything and, and, <laughs> and not offend anyone. Offend. I mean, that's not my job to offend. It's your job <laughs> to not be offended. There you go. I mean, how, does anybody out there agree that a 38% increase in housing over two years it is a bit odd. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very odd for that to happen. So when we start trying to figure out, okay, why did housing increase in cost 38% or 30, let's use JP Morgan's number, 35.1% in two years. I mean, we're trying to just work through the details and minutia of where we were, where we are, and where it looks like we may be headed. And I think Larry's call was the most interesting call because you know what Larry said? I'm betting against you. And that's why we have people buying bonds. That's why we have people buying equities. That's why we have people buying land on this side of the road and land on that side of the road. It is a free market. And you have a right to make a decision that, that looks into the future and says, I think this will be worth more. Or the, the bears are betting, I think this will be worth less. You know, a month from now, a year from now, six months from now, and it really is kind of, um, it's central to our economic system. Rev believes one thing about the economy. I believe another thing about the economy. And the reason that I think Charlie Munger is such an interesting and pivotal figure in American finance is how many times they got it right. For those that just joined us, Charlie Munger died yesterday at 99 years old. He was the, the partner to Warren Buffett. And the guy that really convinced Warren Buffett, Buffett's a young buck. I think he's 95 or six. Uh, Munger was 99. It would have been 100. Uh, I think the end of December or the 1st of January. I think it might have been the first. Nearly lived 100 years. But when Buffett and Munger got together, Buffett had uh, a Harvard business professor that had made a lot of influence or had a lot of influence in his life. And he convinced Buffett the way to get rich is to buy the cigarette butt companies. And I'd read this year's cigarette butt companies. What is that? I mean, buy R.J. Reynolds, you know, Philip Morris. No, you buy the companies that are fairly well run, but very undervalued. And you get the last two or three puffs off the cigarette. And that's where you make your profit. You buy it on the cheap. It's not a great company. Might not even be a good company, but you can buy it so cheap. And Munger said, no, I think our investment theory or investment strategy should be to buy really good companies that are fairly priced. And that's what they started doing. They started buying really good companies that were fairly priced. And the rest, as they say in Paris and Pamplico, is histoire because they became two of the wealthiest men the world has ever known. And Munger was the wealthiest man the world didn't know. Oh, true. Because if you, if you kind of walk around in the regular world and say, you know, you ever heard of Warren Buffett? Yeah, I've heard of that guy. I mean, he's a rich guy, got investing. And how about Charlie Munger? I don't know who that is. Don't have any idea who that is. 
And that's why uh, Buffett famously called him the abominable no man because um, he just didn't want his name out there. But he was uh, just essential to the business of Berkshire Hathaway. And I think we're talking housing or we're talking, will the sub sandwich go to six or nine? I mean, will the $9 sub sandwich go back to $6? Will the, will the, um, the $13 fast food meal go back to seven or eight or $9? I don't know the answer to that, but, but I know this, there are bears and bulls. There are people who think housing is, is about where it should be. There are some who think housing is far too overpriced and it's not an insult to anybody in that sector of the economy. It's just some of these economic for the problem that I think we have Rev, is there is no precedent. I mean, there, there is no, okay. Remember back then when they did X or Y, <laughs> Yeah, the last time Z. we injected $6 trillion seven, into the economy, I mean, 7 trillion, yeah. you know, from 15 to $22 trillion of new liquidity. And we're beginning to kind of extract some of that liquidity out. Um, and it's increased the price of everything. I mean, everything has gotten, just unbelievably expensive to the point of I hear anger in people's voice when they talk about going to the grocery store or talk about a fast food meal. Um, I know people in the restaurant business. They'd rather not charge you $15 for that hamburger. The last thing they want is you mad with them for having to charge you $15 for a hamburger. I mean, I got a buddy in particular. He said, look at this menu. And I'm looking at his, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I mean, I am ashamed that this is my menu, but I don't have a choice. I mean, I, I, that's all I, you know, butter's gone up. Mayonnaise has gone up. Ketchup has gone up. Ranch dressing has gone up. Hamburger meat has gone up. Potatoes have gone Onions have gone Everything has gone up. And, you know, as, as people in business famously say, I'll be tired and I'll be broke. I ain't going to be tired and broke. <laughs> I'll be tired or I'll be broke. But I ain't being tired and broke. One of the um, the places that we think you can save a little money is health insurance. It's complicated, no doubt about it. Everybody's situation is uniquely different. Um, the Obamacare exchanges don't allow you to make fundamental choices about your health care that we think you should be entitled to do. Christian Levis can help you with that. What, what do you need to do? You need to call 839-888-3970. He can't help you with the price of a house. He can't help you with the federal fund rate. He can't help you with the sub sandwich but he can help you save money on health insurance. 839-888-3970 or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. Let's go to the phone. Gary in Chirag. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Um, I was just thinking back, as you were talking about earlier, about the cost and everything going up. You know, a few years ago, it was COVID was this and COVID was that. That's the reason we're having to do all this. But you never see when we have one of those type of events where things start to go down. You know, that they use COVID as their excuse for jacking up house prices and lumber prices and everything else. But it seems like now, once it's, you know, now we're past COVID, nothing goes back. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. What, what, what if, here I go, crazy idea. This is the crazy idea of the day. You ready? What if the government's collecting of taxes was based on how much they devalued your dollar. <laughs> what, what, what if the federal government, what, what if Congress passed a law and said you can collect 22% if inflation is 1%? If inflation is 2.5%, you can only collect 16% or 15%. Because I'm telling you, the government taxes you at about 50% of your income. 
the government has devalued the 50% they let you keep by probably 15 or 20%. It might even be 20 or 25%, to be honest with you. I saw a tab yesterday of a guy who bought, um, he, he's got a kind of a Thanksgiving ritual, and he goes to the same grocery store, and he buys the same things um, the day before Thanksgiving. And last year, the year before, the year before COVID, that would have been 2019, he spent $45.80. This year, he spent like $81.65. What if the government's ability to collect taxes was based on how responsible or irresponsible they'd been? Because every time we borrow a dollar, guys, every time we go deeper in debt, it devalues your dollar. I mean, that's another dollar in circulation. They, they got to pay the debt, right? I mean, so the, so that the creation of that debt and, and the Fed buying that debt creates more and more liquidity. And, and, and a lot of people believe that's why inflation is not being curtailed. I mean, the quantitative tightening is happening, but we're still spending about $1.7 or $8 trillion this year that we don't have. So you, you kind of, um, okay, we're, we're, we're selling, we're offloading $60 billion a month off our balance sheet to get our financial house in order. But at the same time, Congress is spending about $1.7 trillion they don't have. And that money's, I mean, you see where I'm headed? I mean, that, that, that money is out there somewhere. I mean, you know, it's not money you have in your pocket, but it's money you owe. I mean, how many of you don't, when you start making your budget and paying your bills, I mean, you have to account for that money, right? I can't spend this money on groceries because I have to pay my house payment. I can't spend this much money on Gamecock or Tiger football because I have to pay my car payment. So that's money you're not able to spend because it's already spoken for. But what if the federal government, what if the federal government were, were only allowed to collect a certain percentage based on what a, an honest measurement of inflation is? I'm not talking about CPI. I'm not talking about the way they do it now, this basket of goods that excludes food and fuel. I mean, what do we buy more of than anything? Food and fuel. That's why they exclude it. Durable goods, they exclude some of the durable goods. Some of they allow to be in the basket of of measurement of inflation, uh, some they don't. But but I, that's a crazy idea. But but wouldn't it force government? Yeah, it would incentivize them to control inflation. In Stop other words, doing things that w- create inflation. When, when they send you your tax bill and say you owe 32% of your income, and you'll say, no, I don't. I owe 21% of my income because you guys devalued. Because of your financial irresponsibility, you devalued my dollar by, you know, 20%. So so here, here's here's what I'm Here's what I'm required of. I know what you think I owe you, but here's what the the Congress passed a law saying, here's what I owe you. And I just think we got to think so far out of the box in in our ability to get our country back under um, and in sound footing and some financial underpinning that can create a. But there there has to be a desire to do it amongst the people in power, right? I mean, and and but here's what I'm saying, Rev. I, I don't know what. I mean, if you're if you're in Washington and you're spending money. And nobody's held accountable to spending money we don't have. What is the one thing that gets us aware of how irresponsible we've been? It's going to be a financial calamity. It's going to be the train running completely and totally off the track. And and where do we go from here? And that's that's my concern. And and I don't have any idea when that is. I don't have any idea what that looks like. I've said it a million times. I'll say it a million. What I don't have any idea what it looks like. But, but I know that people people are living in la-la land and know they're living in la-la land but have no idea how to get out of la-la land. I mean, if Carl Icahn says it, and he knows as much about sophisticated finance as anybody in the world, and Icahn says, look, we all know 
that we're on a party bus and we all know that the party bus is heading off into the abyss and we all know the abyss includes a big cliff and a big fall and a an economic um, tsunami of which we probably never witnessed before in our life, but I'm not going to be the first guy to get off this party bus. I mean, is Bill Ackman going to be the first guy? Is Jamie Dimon going to be? Who's going to be the first guy to get off the party? I mean, they all know it, but you're managing businesses and that business's best interest is to continue to encourage the government to be financially responsible. I mean, that's kind of where the majority of movers and shakers in government, excuse me, in business find themselves. I saw yesterday where the majority, um, the Koch brothers are going to be for Nikki Haley. Um, some of the other big Republican donors are now in Nikki Haley's camp. Why? Because they don't believe she's a threat. They think she'll continue to allow the party bus to run for as long as the party bus can run. And look, there are really skilled people keeping this train on the track. I mean, there are unbelievably bright and competent people managing the, the inevitable debt bomb. I just don't think they can manage it forever. I, I got to believe if I'm Jamie Diamond, you know what I'm thinking? I mean, when I go to work every now if I'm Diamond, we're a day closer to the world imploding, but we're a day closer to my retirement. I mean, we're a day closer to somebody else inheriting this CEO of J.P. Morgan, uh, America's banker, so to speak, and they'll be the ones that have to deal with, you know, uh, what whatever comes after that number that we say we're continuing to approach becomes a, a reality. Let's go to the phone. Neil and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Neil. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, uh, as you're talking about the housing, you know, it's easy for us to kind of blame the Fed and, and their, you know, pseudo-government entity and bankers and other things like that. But when you think about where the government's responsibility is, what happens if you make money when you sell a house? You have two choices. You either get taxed or you put it into another house. So this is where, you know, you, you have the public policy discussion. But if you could allow people to take, you know, some profit on a house and downsize, then it makes sense. But basically, government policy does nothing but force the home buyer to continuously spend more on a house. So just wanted to throw that one in there too. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, if you think about it, the people that are in charge of the housing sector of our economy, I mean, they lobby the government. I mean, do you think people in real estate want you by selling a $500,000 house, buying a $250,000 house and having the tax advantage of letting the 250 sit somewhere? I mean, that's not in real estate's best interest. So I get the real estate industry lobbying the government to, hey, when, when you sell this half-million-dollar home, we don't need somebody buying a $250,000 home and not being taxed on the, you know, the, the margin, the two hundred fifty dollars that they didn't spend because you're talking about 1031 exchanges and whatnot. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 as we continue to um, provide positive news over the airways. Oh, yeah. Segment after segment after segment after segment of uplifting <laughs> and your, positive. Yeah, your analysis of the economy has not been very uplifting. Let's go to the vault. Maybe somebody can lift us to a higher place. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Well, good morning, fellas. I don't know that I can do that because you, you, you're really kind of bumming me out here this morning. <laughs> but, uh, that, that, that's life, and it's not surprising. A couple of observations about some things we, you talked about this morning. The, you were talking about taxation. We, we, you know, we, we, we started a, a revolutionary war because we did not have – we had taxation without representation. And someone said, uh, well, what maybe is even worse is taxation with representation that we have to deal with these days. 
Um, talking about housing, I, I came down to Darlington uh, yesterday uh, from Cross Hill, and, as, and you know, one of the things I've noticed is as I get beyond Clemson Road, between Clemson Road and Lugoff Elgin, there are tremendous developments of houses. It's big houses, it seems to me, that's being packed right on top of each other. So there is a housing market booming in Columbia, and I don't know who's going to be buying all those homes, but uh, uh, that's just, a, just an observation. And finally, uh, yes, Charlie Munger was, uh, he was kind of the silent partner of sorts. Uh, I, I, I loved uh, his dry wit and uh, the way they uh, uh, interacted together. And, you know, attending a, uh, a Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting was just about as big a event as going to a, a Clemson, Carolina uh, football game for a Berkshire uh, stockholder. And I just checked uh, today, I guess yesterday, the Berkshire, Berkshire has two classes of stock. And they started out with the A stock, and it went up so high that they finally, in 1996, decided to create another class of stock called B stock that more people could afford. But uh, I, I think I'm correct here, but the highest price stock on the New York Stock Exchange right now is Berkshire Hathaway's Class A at about $547,000 a share. So uh, uh, that's that's not too bad a return if you got into the Class A uh, in the earlier days. And then the B stock, for those that, uh, Josh, you may want some B stock there at about $362 a share. It's going to be interesting to see um, uh, where Berkshire goes uh, with, with Munger's passing. And, you know, like I said, uh, Warren doesn't have too much longer either, probably. But, uh, you know, what they did was, uh, uh, you know, when Munger got in there, they decided what they were going to do was buy, you said, fairly priced uh, stocks. And the reason that these stocks were fairly priced was because they were in businesses that these two could understand, and they were led by good management. And when they acquired a company, it may have been a boring company, but they left the management pretty much intact, and they were kind of hands-off operators with their various uh of various investments. And so uh, uh, the only thing that bothered me about Warren is the fact that for some reason he's a big Democrat, and I never really understood that. But uh, anyway, just, just some observations. You've had me thinking about a lot of things the, uh, this morning. And um, you know those, those average prices of houses and, and, and uh, cars and things like that. What, what would be the regional averages. In, in other words, in South Carolina, is there any statistics out there that shows the regional values as opposed to national averages? Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, there's some hot markets and then there's some not so hot markets. South Carolina right now in general would be a hot, a hot market. I've seen the houses. Um, he's talking about being built off in um, off 20 when you come through uh, hitting you be on this side of Columbia if you leave uh, from Florence. Uh, when you go to, to, to Horry County, I mean, they, you know, they're still building like crazy. So you've got these, um, these places that people are migrating into. And some of my buddies in real estate believe that, yes, it could get pretty rough in certain places, but in South Carolina, it's going to be okay. We're not going to be insulated totally from a recession, but we could be somewhat insulated because we're a low tax state. We got good weather. People want to live here. Some of these overbearing Democrat governments. Uh, bad weather for a lot of reasons. People leave. Um, people leave the Northeast and Midwest um, to come down south. So yeah, I mean we'll be somewhat insulated. But and and I could probably pull up some charts or graphs, or I might try to get a buddy of mine who is president of the Realtors Association to come on 
and let's discuss some of what we've um uh, some of what we have anticipated. Oh, let me back up. It's unfair to Rev and Josh. Some of what I've anticipated <laughs> to be some headwinds um, heading our way. Um, the one thing that that I think Munger was so brilliant at is he and he and Warren Buffett. The only thing they required when they made a significant investment in a company. Let's say Rev's got a big furniture company and Rev's tired of the business and. You know, the, the family's gone its own way. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a multi-million dollar a year business. And, you know, Munger comes in or Buffett or Berkshire uh, does an evaluation. They make Rev an offer. The only thing they wanted to know in the early days, I don't know about now, but, but you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, they would ask Dave Baker, what is your secession plan? I mean, if you died in a car wreck this morning, what happens to your business? And they wanted a real detailed and entailed and specific plan. Um, does Dave have a kid? Is that kid capable? Does Dave have a brother? Uh, in other words, if you don't have a secession plan, then we need to be a part of creating one for the event of, I mean, it's key man policy and all these other. But from what I've understood, they never meddled much. I mean, if Dave Baker started a furniture business at the back of his truck, and had built that business over 30 years to 300 employees and $150 million in sales, the last thing they want to do is tell Dave Baker how to run a furniture yeah. business. But so they want to buy good companies and, that are run well. And provide liquidity for growth, you know, and, and to, to bear some of the burden of, of financing of growth and whatnot. But, but all they ever asked of Dave was, tell us what happens if you get run over by a car. You know, we, we need clarity there. And um, because a lot of these businesses they bought were – kind of identifiable to the person, that would be an interesting question. And, I mean, a lot of you out there who have interest in business, what one business, because I'm thinking about Munger and Buffett, what one business out there do you associate with one single person? But that, that, that would be something I would probably write down a list of companies and names and whatnot. I mean, I, and I'm not talking about the creator and founder. I mean, obviously, Walt Disney and Disney, um, Ray Kroc and McDonald's, Tesla, Elon Musk, Te- Tesla, Elon. What is there? Is there a business or two or three out there that when you think of the business, you think of the person as much as you do? And Elon, I mean, they're, they're, you think of think of Starlink. I mean, you think of Tesla. Yeah. I mean, you think and of Twitter. Twitter. You think of Elon. It's his baby. It's, his fingerprints are all over <laughs> it. I mean, you you got to believe in some every, he created and some he bought. But every every business he probably owns, he is intimately involved. I mean, I got to believe he doesn't farm out a lot of the big decisions. <laughs> he makes those on his own. Got one for you? Trump. Yeah, Trump. There, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. I mean, there's no question about it. And um, and some of these companies, I'm not saying you put them on autopilot. I'll tell you, J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon have become somewhat like that. Now, now Trump owns that business. Musk owns those businesses. Jamie Dimon runs that yeah. business. But he is kind of associated. When you think of J.P. Morgan, it doesn't take you but a minute to think of Jamie Dimon. What other publicly traded company do you almost automatically think, yeah, that guy runs that business? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. So it's 843 now at 905. Josh and Rev are excited. They've lined up a, a uh, call with Carly Shimkus of Fox News, right? I mean, she's on Fox and Friends. Mm-hmm. She is a news reader. Um, I think she's been a frequent guest of some of the um, – the more popular shows, Outnumbered, Gutfeel, Hannity's um, show. Um, she's writing or has written a cookbook, I think. So she'll be with us at 9.05.
Fox News personality, Carly Shimkus. Right, Rev? Yep. And you said you've seen her. That's the plan. Well, I saw her on there uh, this morning. Yeah, she's, I saw her. She's reading the news, and uh, they, they told Josh that uh, she'll call at 9.05, but she might be a couple of minutes late because she's coming right off the TV set. She, she's so. easy on the eyes. I'll just leave her there. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> First time I'd ever seen her was this morning when you pointed her out. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And? <laughs> then you said, okay, we'll talk to her. Yeah. She's hey, interview approved. Written a cookbook. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Daphne and Dylan. Hello, Daphne. Good morning. Uh, I'm listening to everything that is wrong. And the government has caused everything that is wrong. Uh, and it's intentional. Breeze is exactly right. Uh, the fact is, they forced the banks to loan the people that couldn't repay in order to take over those loans. They have forced the banks to loan money to students that shouldn't have been going to college in order to take over those loans. They, in fact, uh, are now taking over the car companies because they do not want anyone to be able to afford a car. They do things that way to, in fact, take over all aspects of the economy and the people control. They want all of us in public housing. They do not want any individually owned properties. They do want to control all the energy so that they can force us to do what they want us to do. Uh, Obama, unlike anyone that was paying attention, I paid attention. He actually took over more of state land and declared it federal land than any other president in history. Also, the fact that they want to control all the health aspects is another way of controlling. If you think of the number of illegals that have come over our border, five to eight million, and each one of them get a Medicaid card, they're overwhelming the health system. And those people cost us billions and billions of dollars a year so it's all intentional and it's all about what george soros said at the world economic forum you have got to be able to control a nation and it's fun to bring governments down thank you thank you daphne you know that's kind of an interesting elon musk i don't know if you saw this or not elon musk gave an interview somewhere i mean i don't remember but i saw some of the interview on might have been real clear politics and he was talking about Soros and he said, and I'm, I'm maybe not getting this a little bit wrong, but in, in essence, he basically said that Soros despises humanity. I mean, there's just something about this guy. Um, and, and the interviewer pushed back is what do you mean he despises humanity? And he said, well, I mean, he had a rough upbringing. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He was, um, uh, Jewish in the period of time that, you know, the Holocaust and he saw some real nasty, nasty things. Um, I mean, I, I, how do you live through that and not have some eternal scar? I mean, I, I don't know where you go from there, but it's hard to believe you can just go back to normal after you witness and, and live through some of what Soros did. But when Musk was asked to kind of defend his statement about he hates humanity, Elon made an interesting point point. said, well, I mean, he wants to, he spends a lot of his money trying to get prosecutors elected in local governments that won't enforce the law. 
That's kind of an interest. I mean, when you think about that, I mean, what what would motivate a, a fellow human being who has enormous amounts of money? And and let's give him credit where credit's due. He has done probably the best at arbitraging. By that I mean, where do I get the 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 best return on my investment? I'm not giving to presidential candidates because I just don't believe I get a lot of return. If I give Joe Biden ten million bucks to trying to beat Donald Trump, at the end of the day, I, okay. I gave Biden money. He beat Trump. He's more in line with my worldview. But if I can, if I can infiltrate law and order, and some of these local governments and state governments, that's real bang for the buck. And, and what he does is because if you think about it, if he gives Biden ten million, there's a Republican who's going to give Trump ten million. But if he gives a Democrat, a liberal Democrat activist running for uh, you know deputy attorney general or some office. Um, district attorney, a million dollars. I mean, that that's, I mean, I'm not saying it wins the election, but if money's the mother's milk and that candidate has that much more money, it, it, it's a wise investment. But I still don't understand his goal. I mean, what well, is, I mean, he okay, trying, but, is he trying to destabilize no, our country? No, so, so what, what do, I mean, if, if, if Musk is right and, and he's done a great job and I think you'll agree with me, he does, he, he makes wise investments. I mean, not only in his financial life. I mean, he's gotten enormously wealthy by same sort of arbitrage. I mean, I think that's kind of his specialty. But but he he you know Josh is running as a conservative DA. I'm running as a liberal DA. Josh can spend forty thousand dollars, and he gives me five hundred thousand. I'm I'm the I'm the, I'm the front runner all of a sudden. I mean, no matter what we believe in, I got that much more money to convince people that I'm something, whether I am or not. So he gets how to maximize the contributions he makes. But what is fundamental about a human being who wants to help district attorneys and attorney generals get elected who don't want to put violent offenders in jail? I mean, that's kind of what you're asking. Right. What, what floats his boat? I mean, what, what about, what, what about that the, makes any sense? Because he's not dumb. I mean, nobody would accuse a guy who's been that successful in the world of finance to be dumb. I mean, he's not dumb or ignorant at all. So, so what is that, the human scar? I mean, does he despise America? Could it be? You ready? I'm being hypothetical. Could it be that he thinks we were late to the game in the Second World War? I mean, could that be the case? And this is the way he, I mean, a vendetta against America? Because he doesn't involve himself in a lot of other governments. And he and he's got kind of gone to the record. I don't care much for America. I mean, could that be the eternal scar that I'm talking about? You know, all the horrific atrocities that happened, uh, you know, during the leading up to our involvement in the Second World War. Does he, you know, is he is he spiteful of the fact that we waited as long as we did, and this is how he seeks retribution to just completely and totally put uh, the American government in chaos? Because I think two of the cases that Trump is having to deal with, Soros was the biggest contributor to both of those people who are now entrusted with pretty important legal responsibilities. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Last hour of this cold Tuesday morning. It's kind of cold in South it Carolina today. Coldest. 27, I think, when I woke up this morning. Coldest day of the season yeah, so it's, far. Um, 27 down here is like 40 below zero any, anywhere else. Uh, we have a special <laughs> guest with us, Fox & Friends' first host. She is also a newsreader on Fox & Friends and has written a new book, Cooking with Friends, Carly Shimkus. Ms. Shimkus, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning. It is so good to be talking to you. I love South Carolina. It's a great state. 
It is a great state, except when it's 25. It's not so great when it's when it's 25 outside. I know. When you were talking about the weather, I was like, "Ooh, I wonder what what a, the exact temperature is in New York City because it should be much much warmer where you are. It's 30 degrees here, so, well, so you're, you're getting it worse. Yeah, something's not fair about that. But uh, yeah, but but anyway, how do you end up at Fox News? And after that, how do you end up being so interested in cooking that you decide to write a cookbook? Well, the way that I ended up at Fox News is um, I interned. This is going back to when I was in college. I was an intern for Fox News in the D.C. Bureau, and then I landed a job as Don Imus' assistant. So I started in radio. Uh, Don Imus, when he was at at Fox, his show was simulcasted on the Fox Business Network. So I was his assistant for several years, and I worked on the show, and – I just really wanted to be on air. I always loved Fox and Friends. My family grew up watching Fox News, so it's always where I wanted to be, and I just bugged people so much. I was the squeaky wheel. They finally said, all right, we'll put you on, see how you do. Cooking with Friends was an amazing uh, moment for me because really this book is, it's it's really a compilation of recipes. So I, I sort of crack the code on cookbooks because it does have my name on it, and I'm so grateful for that, but it's filled with other people's <laughs> with other people's recipes and it's filled with recipes from people across fox news plus some special ones of my own that i contributed um and so if you watch fox news and you uh want to know a little bit more about the people that you see every single day this is a great way because it's everybody's most favorite recipe in one book and then before the recipe there's a little paragraph about why it's special to each person so it really is it would make a great gift there's also beautiful pictures of food and beautiful pictures of people that you see on fox news in the book so it came out wonderfully and when they asked if i wanted to be a part of this project um i it was a touching moment for me it was it was a full circle one because i remember being in high school watching fox and friends and watching the cooking with friends segment so that's how that shaped up and i'm so grateful to be presenting this book for everybody so amongst the the um the personalities that we are uh, familiar with at fox news who is a foodie and who is not and is this book written for foodies or is it written for people who give me a hamburger and fries and i'll be just fine <laughs> It's written for everybody. The tagline of the book is fast, uh, fun, fast, easy, and affordable meals. And I think that's great. Fun, fast, easy, affordable meals from America's Best Friends, which I thought was cute uh, that they included that. And it's so true because these meals, are a lot of them are fast. They're budget conscious as well. Like one of them, Janice, I would say, Janice Dean, is, is the foodie we always are gorging in, in in the breaks during Fox and Friends. There's usually food around and her one of her recipes, I'll just give it away. It's it's called um it's grilled donuts and there's three ingredients and one of the ingredients is is store-bought donuts and you just put butter on them and slap them on a grill. Serve it with ice cream. It's delicious. And I'm sure it's something that like I would have never thought to do that. It's just something that she does in her family. Pete Hexat's also a huge foodie and he's got two recipes in this book as well. Okay, if someone wants the book, it'd be a good Christmas gift, I got to believe. So yes. Cooking with Friends is available where and how? It is. Uh, you could buy it very easily on Amazon. You know how everything is on Amazon these days. It's easy to just put in your cart. Or also foxnewsbooks.com. That's where you could pick up a copy or any bookstore as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's easy to get. And I do think it would make such a great gift for people who watch Fox News. Like I said, they did a really good job. HarperCollins and Fox News, uh, Fox Books did a great job of putting the books together. So I'm so proud of it. Yeah, fried donuts with ice cream is about as southern as you can get. We, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I hope, I 
hope I'm speaking the southern language with with uh, mentioning that recipe. You did great. Thank you, Carly. Appreciate your time and good oh, luck with the book. Thank you, guys. Oh, God bless you. Thank you so much. Have a thank, great day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, Rev, Rev says. Well, I mean, Rev and Josh make these deals. Let, let, let's let's inform our. So, how do these deals go down? I mean, when, when do I find out? Okay, you find out not not long before we do the interview. Now, sometimes we'll run it by you. So we get these offerings from Fox every day, and and, and our longtime listeners know that that consists every day of the Fox reporters and sometimes experts in a particular field that they're covering. So we get these emails every day, and then occasionally they they give us what's called a special offering, and that's usually one of the Fox personalities that has a, a book to promote or something of special interest above and beyond their regular purview, I guess. And so you know we'll get those, and I'll ask Josh, hey, did you see this? And uh, and he'll just usually call up and, and book it. And then and then Josh walks in at about five thirty this morning and says, "Hey, um, Carly Shimkus is coming on at nine oh five. And I said, "Who's that? Who? <laughs> who, who is that?" <laughs> well, well, in all honesty, you know, she's on the TV while we're on the radio, so I would understand sure, why sure. you might. not. She's saving the world, and I'm saving the world, right? Simultaneously, right? She's easier on the guys than I am. I'll just say <laughs> yeah. that. Um, it's kind of seconded. Can, can we can we tell the can we tell the Kato? I mean, you guys remember Kato? Um, he preceded No Shot Josh. Um, Kato would always Rev and I knew this about him. There would be a a female made available. Now Kato's the Bible thumper. Yeah, well, them Bible thumpers. You know what I mean? And, and we we picked on him about being the Bible thumper. That was just something we had fun with. Kato never knew. Cato never not knew. That's a better way. Cato yeah. never not knew what the woman looked like before she came <laughs> on the show. Rev, can you vouch for that? Uh, I, I can confirm. not knew what the woman looked like who came on the show. And was one of these, I don't know, one of these women, and you know where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. One, one of these women had this crazy website or Facebook or page Instagram, or tic- Instagram yep, something pictures, or other. Yeah. And it was like bathing suits and lingerie and um, I mean, she came, it was, she was a lawyer and she came on the air and she was a good guest. I mean, a real good, um, well-spoken, uh, well-understood, said a lot of things that made sense. And he kind of walked in here with his phone and he looked up, looked her up on Instagram or something yeah. or other. And it was like, whoa, Real okay. A little, uh, wild yeah, side let, to let's, 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 <laughs> I said, we can't have our own. I mean, we, we're conservatives and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're working off the spirit of the good Lord and we can't have our own. And um and and watch Cato like like kind of um the 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 resident Bible thumper and the the TikTok page kind of created a thunderous <laughs> moment and I and, and I, I loved having a lot of fun uh, with that eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is I, our number. I don't know, Josh, if you've seen, we did get a special offering for Monday. I don't know if you see that just came through a few minutes ago. Who was that? I had not seen that just okay. yet. Uh, Kilmead, Brian Ooh, Kilmead, Brian Brian Kilmead, okay. yeah. Does his feet touch the floor? Uh, <laughs> he's not tall. He's, he's a little. He's not. He's tall. a little guy. He's and, a. He's and, a smaller guy. And we've had him on the show several times he's a good guy. before. And he's yeah. He's a good he's guest. Good and he's one of the great uh, Fox and Friends personalities. So I don't know if we need we need to try to get him because I don't think we have anybody anybody else scheduled for Monday. Okay, we may do that. Um, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. If that's okay with, with uh, they, you, I, I love sitting down uh, and hosting a radio show and not knowing as much as the people that. Or helping me host a radio show. That's fun for me. I mean, I'm serious. I mean that honestly. I think spontaneity or spontaneity. Uh, and, and, you know, just. Yeah, um, I know uh, you like that. Well, I mean, that, you prefer just, it. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes for people are at their best 
when they're not as organized and orchestrated as people tend to become. I just think you really get more honest answers, more honest conversation, the more sincere debate when we're not programmed, you know, to, to what, Hey, at exactly 9.05, this happens. At but exactly see, I, 8.40, I, and this I can, happens. On your behalf, I can vouch for that as well because Josh printed up Carly Shimkus's bio sheet so you'd have the information. But you didn't really read that until we were about two minutes from going on the air. Well, I mean, she's writing a cookbook. I, I can kind of. Yeah, but I mean, you know, there, there were some details sure. about her history in Fox. And, but I mean, and if, if, she were, if she were coming on the show to talk about policy or, or some sort of campaign, I, I would like to be more informed about, hey, what, what is this person running on, or what are they running for, and why? I mean, I, you know, you, you deserve serious answers to those. In other words, if Ron DeSantis, when he came on the show, I mean, I made some notes to myself. If Nikki Haley were to come on the show, I would make notes because you deserve, I mean, if we get six minutes with Governor Haley, you deserve serious radio for six minutes. Um, I mean, I don't know how serious or not it matters about a cookbook. Uh, I'm not making a lot of a cookbook by any stretch of the imagination, but but I think you have an opportunity to kind of let her steer the conversation or debate. Uh, and if you have a candidate on, then, then I think you got to be prepared that your listeners want to know X, Y, or Z about that, about that particular candidate. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, my man. Uh, I was thinking about the media yesterday. Who was the people that the, the Democrats just hated the most? And I would call them the Koch brothers and the Cheneys back in the day. And I'll give Nikki Haley credit. I guess she's getting endorsement from one of the Koch. I call it the Koch brother. But that just shows you there is a global Washington establishment media that, hey, man, this if, if it all focuses on D.C. And, and the globe and our networks, uh, that's all that matters. And I was thinking about Nikki was in Bluffton the other day. Can you near dead to my heart, I was thinking about Johnsonville played against Bamberg the other night. I think Johnsonville won, and I'll give you a few statistics real quick. Uh, Johnsonville, back in 1980, had about 1,500 people. Well, how many people live there now? About 1,500 people. Uh, Bamberg had about 3,500 people back in 1980. Uh, how many people live there now? About 3,500. But let's take she was in Bluffton the other day. Bluffton uh, had about 500 people back in those days, and now it's got 35,000. So you have to wonder what's going on there. And thinking about football, I played against a team, and I couldn't call it Sean Hannity and talk about this. They're called H.E. McCracken, and you, you've heard of them back in the day. And these guys actually had a team that they had, with the whole year, gave up one touchdown. And I remember playing against them. When you go shake their hands and this and that, these guys pulled the helmet off. Uh, they had full beards, and some of them were balding. So bottom line, they cheated. Uh they got their titles or whatever taken away, but, man, I'm looking at politics. You think these Democrats don't know they've got from November Election Day to January 6th to do all their shenanigans? That's another part of this whole deal because they know they've got a window of opportunity to do whatever they need to do. So it's not like you can come back a year later or Joe Paterno or Nick Saban and take somebody's victories away. Uh, once they did that on January 6th, it was over with. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. You know, Nikki is trying, I mean, I understand her strategy. I mean, she's the alternative to Trump. I mean, you know, DeSantis is, I'm not Trump, but I'm enough like Trump. I mean, if you'll vote for me, you get some of the uh, same policies of Trump, just a different personality and flavor and flair. 
Nikki has decided, and, and I get it. I mean, I understand it. She's decided to be the anti-Trump candidate. I mean, I am the establishment candidate. I'm meeting with the Koch brothers. I'm spending a lot of my time on Wall Street. I mean, historically, she is the Jeb Bush Mitt Romney of today's iteration of the Republican Party. I will be so interested in what Nikki does if, I mean, if you, 50 days from today, we've got an Iowa caucus. Trump is up by 20, 30 points-ish, somewhere thereabout. Um, it seems to me, and I said yesterday, DeSantis putting all of his eggs in that basket. I mean, he's got Kim Daniels' endorsement. He's got one of the state's prominent evangelicals, Bob Vanderpleets, I think. What's his name? Uh, I think it's Van Pleets. Uh, anyway, he's got his endorsement. Uh, he's putting, uh, to me, if DeSantis does not finish second or first, I mean, he really needs to win because he's really, really invested about every ounce of his campaign uh, in Iowa. If he doesn't win in Iowa, to me, he's done. If Trump wins in Iowa, it's over. So so when I think about Nikki, and I'm, I'm thinking about the, what, what is the best scenario for Nikki, because I had a text message and an email yesterday from a Nikki supporter wanting my opinion of, you know, the lay of the land in South Carolina. And, you know, I just, I don't see, she's 30 points behind in South Carolina. I would argue that Haley is probably more popular in places outside of South Carolina than she is in her home state. That's not real uncommon. I mean, your favored son. Well, in today's very polarizing political landscape, I mean, if you make decisions as a governor of a state, you made a lot of enemies. People wish you'd done X instead of Y or Y instead of Z. But but I, when, when I look at Iowa, to me, if DeSantis does not win, he's done. If he's done, you go to New Hampshire with Nikki and Trump. And that's where we may see New Hampshire would not be the best example of that, but the combination of New Hampshire and South Carolina. And we'll talk to um, Drew McKissick about this tomorrow. So... So let's, for argument's sake, let's say it plays out as we think it will. Trump wins in Iowa. DeSantis is disappointed because he did. I don't think DeSantis can finish second in Iowa and call it a success. I just don't. I mean, I think he's got to win. Uh, and if he doesn't win in Iowa, I don't know how you move on to, to New Hampshire. I think Nikki's positioned herself to finish. I mean, she'd love to finish second, but if she finishes third and DeSantis decides to bail, it becomes Haley and Trump in New Hampshire and South Carolina. And I think in those two states, with those two in the race, you're going to get a full understanding of how many America Firsters there are and how many establishment Republicans. With DeSantis in the race, it's going to be clouded because DeSantis is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I'll give you an example. Ken Langone, uh, one of the founders of Home Depot, has, has let it be known that he's going to meet with Nikki Haley because he thinks she is the best alternative to Trump. Now, now he had been a supporter of Ron DeSantis. He'd given DeSantis a lot of money, raised a lot of money. It seems to me that, it, you know, kind of he's accepting right on the wall that this is not DeSantis' time. W one of the most interesting parts of this entire election is where does Ron DeSantis go next? Because I do believe, I still believe he's got a future in the party. I still believe that he is a, a good candidate. I still believe he can run. I mean, you'll see him tonight or tomorrow night. I think it's tomorrow night on Hannity when he and Gavin Newsom. And it's basically California versus Florida. I mean, it's weird, and I get it. I mean, it, but it's almost like Fox News is forcing voters to turn the page 
from Biden and Trump, whether they want to or not. Uh, we, we hear the voters, and the voters want Trump in the Republican primary. I'm not sure they want him in Biden and the Democrats, but I mean, he's still leading in the Democrat polling. But it's almost like Fox News says, yeah, but, but here's what you could have two younger guys, you know, um, one conservative, one liberal, one from a prominent state, the other from, from a very prominent state. I don't believe the debate will be as much about DeSantis and, and uh, Newsom as much as California and Florida. Um, and, and the kind of, kind of the, uh, the policy difference between one state and another, but, but 50 days to Iowa. And I looked this morning and cause I knew it was 50 days to Iowa. Trump is 12 Point two points better today than he was this exact day four years ago. This exact day four years ago, he was down 9.9 to Biden. This exact day this year, he's up 2.3. So there's a 12.2. That's a huge, guys, mm-hmm. I've run for office. That is a monumental change. Now, now, as I like to say about the economy, what does that mean? I don't know. Where do we go from here? I don't know. But I looked at the betting odds. And today, Donald Trump is favored by a bigger margin than he's ever been favored, even in the Republican primary, to be president of the United States. Once again, uh, the RCP aggregate, you ready? Trump's betting odds are 36.3%. Joe Biden is 27.6%. I mean, it was not long ago. It was a month ago. That Trump was at 31 or 2. Biden was at, uh, you know, 29 or 30. I mean, it was kind of a toss-up. It's not a toss-up there. And and then the, the the betting average is not about Iowa polling. I mean, that's a part of it, or New Hampshire polling or South Carolina polling. It's about that polling plus right track, wrong track, approval, disapproval, you know, how some of the states break. I mean, some of the state polling isn't all of this. But But the most interesting thing to me, is what happens if Haley and Trump end up in a, I would say a mano a mano, but that wouldn't be the proper way to say it, um, a woman, uh, one woman, one man. How about that? One woman, one man primary that includes somebody who has absolutely said to the voting public, I'm the establishment candidate. I mean, Nikki's kind of sort of embraced that. Every time we turn around, she's meeting with Ken Langone on Wall Street. She's meeting with bankers at J.P. Morgan. She's meeting with hedge funds on, on uh, Wall Street. She's being uh, courted and endorsed by the Koch brothers, which is the Koch brother now. Um, and and I, I, I'm so interested. If, if DeSantis doesn't win Iowa and he bails, they go to New Hampshire, Nikki versus Trump. They come to South Carolina, Nikki versus Trump. One would be an overrepresentation of America first. One, but one would be an underrepresentation. But I think if Nikki and Trump run, as the only two candidates in those two states, Trump beats her, I think, 62, 3, 4 to 35, you know, ish. I mean, I still think it's, I mean, I'll stand by my call. I think two of three voters in the, in the Republican primary consider themselves America firsters. And the closer Nikki um, Curry's favor with Wall Street and hedge funds and, you know, um, rich entrepreneurs, the less inclined she is to be the choice of America Firsters. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a few moments. You who are about to enter business school or who there, I recommend you learn to do it our way, but at least until you're out of school, you have to pretend to do it their way. <laughs> People don't seem to get that point. you have any idea why, Charlie? <laughs> Warren, if people weren't so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. No. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think you would understand any presentation using the word EBITDA. If every time you saw that word, you just substituted the phrase bullshit earnings. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm optimistic about life. If I can be optimistic when I'm nearly dead, surely the rest of you can handle a little inflation. <laughs> and of course, that's the other advice. The best way to get what you want in life is to, to deserve what you want. How could it be otherwise? It's not crazy enough so that the world is looking for a lot of undeserving people to reward. Everybody wants fiscal virtue, but not quite yet. They're like that guy who felt that way about sex. Yeah. He's willing to give it up, but not quite yet. Well, <laughs> you don't want to be like the motion picture executive in California. And they said the funeral was so large because everybody wanted to make sure he was dead. <laughs> it was investment banker aided fraud. Yeah, not exactly novel. <laughs> that does not mean we approve of every buyback at all, though. I mean, we've seen. No, no, no. Yeah. I think some people just buy it to keep the stock up, and that, of course, is insane and immoral. But apart from that, it's fine. <laughs> I've listened to so many nonsensical cost of capital discussions that I've never heard an intelligent one. Yeah, Charlie's big on lowering expectations. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the way I got married. <laughs> My wife lowered her ex expectations. <laughs> sure, there are a lot of things in life way more important than wealth. All that said, some people do get confused. I play golf with a man, he says, what good is health? You can't buy money with it. <laughs> well, there are a whole lot of things I don't think about. And one of them is companies that are losing two or three billion dollars a year and going public. People and might in accounting, want you, to... you can do things like they do in Italy when they have trouble with the mail. You know, it piles up and irritates the postal employees. They just throw away a few carloads and then everything flows <laughs> smoothly thereafter. Folks. <laughs> that happened in some unnamed international company, country. <laughs> yeah, Italy. <laughs> the general system for money management requires people to pretend that they can do something that they can't do and to pretend to like it when they really don't. I think that's a terrible way to spend your life, but it's very well paid. <laughs> well, I can't give you a formulaic approach because I don't use one. If you want a formula, you should go back to graduate school. They'll give you lots of formulas that won't work. As Samuel Johnson said famously, I can give you an argument, but I can't give you an understanding. It's extraordinary how resistant some people are to learning anything. He volunteers. No, the board at Lubersall did not breach its duty because we were not going to participate in the transaction if they didn't do it our way. Has anybody else got an easy question? And yet it's perfectly obvious, at least to me, that to say that derivative accounting in America is a sewer is an insult to sewage. <laughs> it's not that great a business as a business, casualty insurance. It's a tough game. There are temptations to be stupid in it. It's like banking. And, but competency is a, relative, is a relative concept. And what a lot of us need, including the one speaking, what I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots. And luckily, there's a large supply. I don't like multitasking. I see these people doing three things at once, and I think, God, what a terrible way that is to think. 
I like cryptocurrencies a lot less than you do. And I think the people who are professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. <laughs> One reminds me, once I asked the man who just left a large investment bank and I said, how does your firm make its money? He said, off the top, off the bottom, off both sides and in the middle. <laughs> well, I would rather throw a viper down my shirt front than hire a compensation consultant. Um, I think I've offended enough people. Right. <laughs> There's two or three in the balcony. <laughs> That's Charlie Munger. You kind of a tribute to the late, uh, great Charlie well, Munger. Character. Yeah, he's very much a character. And you, you hear the simpleness. In his, in his conceptuals, you know what I mean? He's just like, um, which I mean, basically, and he says this over and over and over, Warren and I have gotten rich by not being dumb in a world where most people are dumb. And, and he talks about, you, you know, you want these actual, you want these models, you want these formulas, go to graduate school. Um, kind of a knock on, on higher education. I mean, both are extremely bright, extremely educated and they're throwbacks. And, and I don't know what motivates Buffett to be as liberal as he is. I don't have any idea. But Berkshire Hathaway is one of the, I guess, Rev, the legendary investment company of our lifetime. And they're without one of its founders today. As Charlie Munger died at the age of, of 99. And you do believe, I mean, I don't know how long Warren Buffett will live, but the odds say not much longer, correct? Uh, and what Buffett or what Berkshire looks like after Munger and, um, and Warren Buffett are no longer no longer with us. Let's go to the phone. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Hi, Verd. You're on. Good morning, Ken, on this cold morning. Uh, I'll tell you what is not cold is President Trump. He's been hot since last November when he announced he was running, and uh, he's continued to uh, increase his lead over all his opponents. And uh, whether you look at Haley or DeSantos in second, he's been 30, 40 points ahead of him. Uh, Ken, the question I got is where would President Trump have been if uh, – all these uh, appearances he's had to do in court if he'd been able to stay on the campaign trail and uh, campaign across the country. Uh, and I think the polls bear out that uh, the vast majority of people in this country see those things as witch hunts. I've never, probably the first time I used that term was last night when I made a post, but it is a witch hunt, and I think the vast majority of people see that. I think President Trump would have commanded probably a 50-point lead on everybody if he had been able to campaign full-time and stuff. But he's in a great position. We're 47 days away from the Iowa caucus and uh, 87 days away from the South Carolina primary. And uh, I think he's, like Ken, I think he's going to uh, win all of them. I think he's going to win South Carolina on a landslide. And, and I think it will be pretty much over with. And he will probably have a double-digit lead on Joe Biden by then, which I think is about where he's at now anyway. But anyway, it's uh, getting ready to get busy, hectic, starting the first of the year. And uh, uh, next weekend, starting on Thursday, we have our first in the South Republican Action Conference from the Merrill Beach Hilton, uh, three days of people from all over the country, speakers and uh, planning sessions and stuff. And uh, one last thing, Ken, uh, the South Carolina Election Commission has cleared it for people that wish to vote absentee if you're qualified in the february 24 presidential primary you can go ahead and request your application uh to vote absentee and i think that you can also request the same application for the june primary and for the november general election and get all three of them done to where you'll just be waiting on a ballot when the elections come up next year but the big thing we need to do we need to have a great turnout on february 24th and they have allowed the uh 
uh, voters in South Carolina to start a month earlier, a little, little more than a month earlier, uh, requesting their applications to vote absentee in the February 24th presidential primary. Y'all have a great weekend. Bird, you got a second? Yes, sir. Uh, Plenty. You're out there. I mean, I'm not out there where you are in the capacity you are. Um, it seems to me the media is trying to convince the public that Nikki Haley's support is growing. Her media coverage is growing. Her adoration by the Wall Streeters and insiders is growing. But I don't see anything in the polling, bird that leads me to believe that Nikki's gaining support uh, on, or, or, gain, or closing ground on President Trump like the media is trying to get him. So you're, you're out there. Do you hear that buzz amongst Republican uh, activists in South Carolina? No, uh, matter of fact, I just heard it this morning talking with some people, and uh, they they pretty much have got Nikki Haley in the same position uh, they've had all along. They have no intentions of supporting her or voting for her. They think she did a great job as governor. Uh, you had a re- you had a caller in uh, several months ago. I thought he made a great point. He knew Nikki Haley uh, from Columbia, and she's never she's never finished a job that she's ever taken. She started out as a house member. She quit that to run for governor. Uh, she quit governor, I think, to join President Trump's uh, uh, United Nations position. And then I think when she grew into the aspirations that she had a shot at being president, she uh, she withdrew from the, that position and uh, took a, a position on the board of Bowen. And I'm sure what that did was created a lot of uh, – uh, donor list that she could come up with being a member of the Boeing the board in Charleston and so, but uh, I think he made a great point and that's the point that people bring up to me. Uh, I don't know whether everybody was listening to your show that day, Ken, but I was, and they said, Bert, she's never finished a job that the people of South Carolina elected her to do, and she's always looking for something bigger and better. So, no, Ken, I think uh, it's probably the. Uh, People are grabbing at straws because they see the writing on the wall. Uh, I think, Ken, you said last week that if President Trump wins Iowa and he wins New Hampshire, it's over with. Uh, I think you're probably right, but I do believe that Nikki Haley will stay in that thing to see what South Carolina does, but I don't think it's going to do her much good. I think a poll two weeks ago, she was 52 points behind President Trump in South Carolina. So, you know, the writing's on the wall, uh, and I do believe that President Trump would have a plus 50-point lead on everybody if he'd been able to campaign all the time. But, you know, you got to look at the amazing job that he did with all these negative uh, things that the media's given to him about uh, the indictments and stuff, and he has still grown his lead and stuff. And But, yeah, Ken, I, I don't see Nikki Haley being much stronger now other than she's got a little bit more money. But, you know, uh, money doesn't necessarily equate into winning the elections. You make and put out more ads and stuff. But if the people aren't for you, they just aren't for you. And Nikki Haley's in that group. You know, they realized real quick that they were not going to be for DeSantis, and he fell off the grid. Uh, I think Ramaswamy, the luster of him has fell off, too, even though I think he, I met him in Columbia. I think he's a great guy. I think he's a very smart guy. But uh, the luster of Nikki Haley, I, I don't even want to put it that way. I don't think she ever really had a luster with a lot of people in South Carolina because I, I just get a lot of negative feelings on the people I talk to about Nikki Haley, and these are South Carolinians. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate that. You know, we got to take a break, Josh. Give me two seconds. Um, Josh is kind of – come on, dude, really? Uh, <laughs> just the last hour. Bear with me. So um, – Here's the question that I think Nikki has to address. I mean, if it plays out like I think it does, Trump wins Iowa, DeSantis gets out. I mean, to me, DeSantis can't stay in if he can't win Iowa. I mean, he's got the endorsement of the governor. He's got the endorsement of one of these prominent evangelicals. I don't think it matters, but they do. I mean, they're still operating under this premise of 
you know, uh, politics as usual. I think the, 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 the Trump era of politics is just new. It's different. It's a little bit like NIL and transfer portal football. I mean, you keep doing things the way you've historically done things and you keep losing. So DeSantis gets out. They go to New Hampshire. Will Nikki come to South Carolina and get beat by 30 percentage points? I mean, does that, does that, I mean, you're talking about being a candidate in 28. I mean, Haley and DeSantis will be names you hear in 2028. But if, if Trump wins Iowa and Trump wins New Hampshire, does Nikki risk coming to her home state and losing by 30 percentage points? And how diminishing is that when you think about a run again in 28? I mean, if Nikki goes to people in 28 and says, I'm running again, they'll say, you got beat by 30 points in your home state. I mean, who would buy that? You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. I think it's smart for her to say, hey, thank you, but no thank you. I think the smartest thing DeSantis can do if he loses Iowa, I'm out. Not my time. God bless the primary. God bless the voters. But I'm going home and do a job in Florida. Um, will Nikki risk coming to her home state and losing by 25 or 30 points? I can tell you the answer if it was old Ken. Oh, no. <laughs> No, I'd pull a hamstring. <laughs> I'd be on the injured reserve list. I'd be day to day and out of pocket that day. Take a break. Back in a few. I do have kind of an interesting question, Josh. What What is a, what is the recipe for frying a donut and putting ice cream on top? Uh, donuts, ice cream, and fry oil. That's what I'm saying to be, but, but yeah. what is, I mean, how do you write that Butter. down? Buy donuts, refried, they've already been fried one time, refried donuts buy ice cream to put on top of donuts. That'd be my kind of recipe. <laughs> going to tell Carly Shimka, sounds like a healthy recipe it's, book. It, huh? it, it might not be healthy, but it's good. <laughs> I can assure you of that. My, my extent of recipe and when I was younger is um, open box of Pop-Tarts, <laughs> put Pop-Tarts in oven or, or in toaster, toaster, dispense a package, eat Pop-Tarts, roll paper towel up, throw in trash, move along. <laughs> That was kind of my, um, I've just Try never to avoid burning your mouth on yeah, the pop tart. Would you consider yourself, Josh, are you a foodie? And uh, eh, eh, not really. Okay. Are you Rev? I, I wouldn't consider. Well, let, let, let me it, back it, up a half step. What is a foodie? I mean, when I say, are you a foodie? What, see, you, see, to me, it sounds a little pretentious. Okay, if you say you, you're, you I was going to say, it's, it sounds like, uh, I really enjoy the, right. uh, are you a food snob? No. Okay. I, I like. I like good food. Um, what do you I'm call not, good food? I, I'm not a food snob. Well, what do you all. call good food? I, I don't know. I, I, I get satisfaction by cooking something myself that tastes good and other people like. And, and I, have a, I like to grill and do things like that. But a food snob or foodie, no. Typically, food snobs are thin. They eat healthy. What's your point? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's expensive, though. Right. It, it, it's almost like the poorest amongst us have the most medical issues. I mean, there's socioeconomic studies to show that. I mean, you know, there's a direct correlation between income and and healthiness. I mean, there is. I'm not blaming anybody for anything. I mean, if you're struggling to get by and you only have so much money, McDonald's is a pretty good option. I mean, it just is. You know, I, I'm not I'm not picking on McDonald's, and I'm certainly not picking on poor people. But but if you're if you're struggling to 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 you know to meet ends meet or to make ends meet, it's cheaper to go somewhere that has cheap food. I mean, by definition. Cheap food is going to be cheaper, and it's less healthy. Um, I'm like Reb. I'm not a foodie, but I feel a lot better. <coughs> excuse me, when I eat healthy. 
And, and I, I, I feel better. I, I just, I feel more alive, more awake, more aware. Yeah, I enjoy uh, the opportunity. Occasionally, you know, you, you, if you do get a chance to eat at a place that uses, you know, nice, fresh ingredients, uh, I really enjoy that. You know, and somebody knows how to prepare it too, um, which is not very often. And I don't know that I'm aware of the, the, the sensation of the palate. You know, you'll watch some of these food shows and they're like, can't you taste the, the garlic and you can't taste the oregano? Nah, it tastes like chicken to me. Um, everything tastes like, <laughs> like chicken. Uh, anyway, we'll, um, I want to, I want to delve into this Nikki Haley story. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me. She's making a lot of news. Um, the media is trying to convince us that she's surging. I mean, this is her moment. And I just don't see that reflecting in the polls. I mean, she has taken a little bit of support away from DeSantis. Christie's going nowhere, but he's running to be on MSNBC and CNN every day. And they'll, I mean, they'll, they'll, they aren't some of the forces that are against Trump. I mean, they're basically trying to push her and they're promoting her as being the alternative. But doesn't that confirm my belief that we have an asymmetrical relationship between the donors and the voters? Yep. I mean, to me, if the donors want to ride the winning horse, they get on board with Trump. But for what? And maybe they're that out of touch with regular <laughs> those, folk. Dar- those darn voters. You always yeah, get in the way. Those voters won't let us have our way. Hey, enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.